Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our Week in IndyCar series brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, awesome friends at Bell Racing Helmets USA, TorontoMotorsports.com as well. I have an idea for us this week, something fun and new to do. I'll get to that in just a moment. Our guest for the episode, Mike Hall, Managing Director of Chip Ganassi Racing and young Jacob Abel in the Indy Pro 2000 series, the Mazda Road to Indy, doing some good things there. Mike, I believe, if we're talking about putting up numbers on the board, I believe he's a clear P1 in terms of guests since I launched the week in IndyCar back in 2016. Haven't had him on, though, for about three months, so great to have him back. Interesting conversations, a little bit of insight, kernels of information here or there, then also good stuff with Jacob. Really had fun getting to know him. As usual, we start off a little bit of news and updates. A lot of stuff coming down the pipeline recently. The top one, which <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to manage my reaction because I'm not exactly sure how to react at this point. And that is IndyCars going hybrid. Uh, we've had a lot of questions for months now on the podcast about this. A lot of folks that have said, hey, you know, it'd be really smart if IndyCar were to do this. If they were to say, hey, push to pass, either use it to replace turbocharger boost as the thing that allows the pass when they push the button or factor it into there somehow. That's exactly what IndyCar, IndyCar has come up with. Won't get into how long I've had a pretty good inkling this is going to happen. Let's say I've had to play dumb because that's kind of easy. It comes easily to me, but um, I haven't been mentioning hybrids and the possibility of hybrids for a good while now without just a really strong feeling that it was indeed going to happen. So I'm happy that it has. Won't rehash all of everything that we got into a little bit last week. More on what I wrote. Uh, there's the opinion piece on racer.com as to the reasons about it that make me happy, the justifications didn't want to share one thing. It was just funny. It's kind of the reason I'm laughing at this a little bit is my man, Robin Miller, my brother, Robin Miller, as he normally does, sends me any technical questions that come in for his weekly mailbag on racer. I usually get one, maybe two, maybe none. It's not a lot, but he usually send through one or two per week. Hey, could you answer this? I just started getting this flurry of emails where I was working or doing something in the office for a little bit. And I don't know, it might have been Saturday, I think, but it was just like, boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, holy crap, what is going on, Miller? And these are all questions that he was forwarding with help and other notes attached to it. And so I did my best to answer them to be my nicest person. I completely failed. I turned into a bizarro bad marshal, angry, grumpy marshal. Just because after a while, so many of the questions were like, come on, man. I'm not talking about folks saying, I don't like it. That, I mean, I got nothing to say on that. That's an opinion. That's cool. Again, I got nothing to say if you're not a fan of IndyCar going hybrid. It's all the predictive stuff. It's going to kill the series. It's going to ruin things. It's going to create a bigger divide between the haves and the have-nots. It's all the stuff where you go, you, that's not actual opinion that's making claims that's stating fact that you cannot possibly know 
that's fortune telling i think as i mentioned in the opening question he used in the mailbag um but what got to be really kind of fun were some of the other questions about you know how it's not going to work and the technical things and the reasons and how this problem and that and again all things where i'm like look i don't claim to know everything about hybrids half of things but i do know a lot of what's getting sent in here is just silly so i called him and i'm like dude what are you doing to me here you're you're killing me with all these questions and he's like oh i know i know i said look how do i explain this and i just went into a kind of a loud yelling rant hybrid doesn't mean all electric as most of the questions you're firing my way seem to suggest or think or otherwise the word hybrid what does it mean it doesn't mean one thing indycar's been one thing now it's adding a second thing making it a hybrid what is formula e is formula e hybrid no it's one thing it's one motor electric it's not hybrid it's a hundred percent electric just like indy cars have been a hundred percent combustion engine fossil fuel based motors so by adding a electric motor it doesn't make it all electric it makes it a hybrid two things the motor that goes kaboom, kapow, up and down, pistons and sparks and exhaust and sound and all that stuff. That's half the equation. The electric part, that's the other half. You put them together, you get a hybrid. You don't get all electric. How do we explain this? So he was laughing. I don't know if he was laughing with me or at me, but uh, there might have been about 12 pounds of the table while trying to express this and so anyways miller was like well you gotta gotta open the podcast and do that same rant i'm like no 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 um i like to think that my listeners are pretty switched on for the most part uh so anyways but i did want to share that because he said he was gonna do something mean to me if i didn't at least relate that tale so look forward to more thoughts from you on where we're going with hybrids and hybrid hybrid power trains in the future here lots of other news happening uh i'm recording this late on a wednesday evening uh i think a day or two after i've interviewed mike hole and jacob abel there was a test today in portland where we had renus vk and oliver ask you turn their very first laps in an indy car we also had the andretti autosport team out there they were quick ryan hunter ray had an off that i saw uh, but was okay. But other than that, some other good news coming down the pipeline. Uh, a lot of teams just talking to a lot of people about a lot of things. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a interesting little uh, next couple of weeks for us here. And I'm looking forward to a lot of fun stuff to discuss. So when we were trying to think of what we should do this week, my man Derek Koska from torontomotorsports.com said, hey, why don't we give away something again? And who knows, maybe we'll keep doing this for a little bit. A little bit of a retro weekend IndyCar thing. So he said, all right, we will do either a prize pack of a Marshall Pruitt podcast t-shirt, a pair of James Hinchcliffe signature sunglasses, and uh, some sort of drink koozie. Or we can do, second option, a hamburger and french fry t-shirt and a drink koozie. And then the third option would be assorted stickers and a Marshall Pruitt podcast t-shirt. I assume that would be 
weaken any card unless you want one of the other ones. So we're trying to figure out how we should do this, how we should give this away. And so I said, let's do something a little democratic, I guess, like our elections. In theory, maybe they could be rigged. I don't know. So rather than waiting to come back next week and have me pick the favorite question that's come in, I'm uh, just going to say, so I ask you guys to upvote here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page, your favorite questions that come in, the ones that you want me to prioritize. Can't always get to all of them, therefore it makes an easier roadmap for me to say, aha, there's seven likes on this one and nine on that, two on that, none on that. We're just going to do that. So if you want to win and you send in a question and it doesn't have any likes, I don't know, ask your friends to come and like your question. Or if there's one you just really liked, be sure to like it. So we'll take a look. We come into next week's show. We'll just look back and see whose question had the most likes and whomever that person happens to be going to give you one of those three options of t-shirt sunglasses drink koozie t-shirt drink koozie stickers and t-shirt all courtesy of torontomotorsports.com we'll also just mention once again thank you to cooper tires who've just been really truly awesome not only do they support the road to indy and are heavily invested in making future indycar drivers team owners, engineers, you name it. But they've really taken this podcast to heart since they came on as our very first primary partner in 2017. 2017, good Lord, Pro, get your gears straight. 2018, and are back again as primary once more in 2019, joined by our dear friends at the Justice Brothers, who have been a huge supporter of motor racing for actually longer than I have been alive. And so very fortunate to have them as friends here i don't try to spend a ton of time just saying super sponsor related stuff they don't expect me to there's no contractual obligations here just expressing gratitude because i get to do this because they do indeed make it possible and then beyond torontomotorsports.com which has been super engaged making lots of fun stuff you can buy also have our pals at Bell Racing Helmets USA. And just in terms of friends, brothers, not only are they that to me and to what we do here on the podcast, I can say, and this isn't me trying to be super gushy and, you know, whatever, t- tears to my eye, but those are the four primary partners we have, and they are exactly like that. Brothers, friends, sisters that aren't just here's something to promote say it it's what can we do how can we help what do you need on a personal front on a podcast front what can we do how can we be a really cohesive family here super lucky so if you wonder why i don't go and pursue maybe some bigger names that you might think of whether it's tires or this or that uh i trust me i know a lot of people in this industry have known them for a really long time i know exactly who to call um i'm a really happy guy and it's because the group that support us here that i mention each week they really are like family and treat this podcast project thing of mine like it's theirs so just wanted to share that with you so you understand when you hear me open a show saying thanks to Cooper Tires, Justice Brothers, Toronto Motorsports, Bell Racing Helmets, 
and don't go into super and buy the brand new such and such. Um, that's not what they ask. That's not what they're here for. But I do feel the need to share that the reason they let me do this in this format that isn't super advertisey every five minutes spamming you with some other thing. It's because that's not what they want, not what they ask. So I figure, you know, every now and then I need to stop and just say thank you. And hopefully if you guys are in agreement, it wouldn't be bad to say thank you as well to them. So with all that said, let's get going with our man Mike Hall. Recorded yesterday, day before, I don't know, something like that. Jacob Abel as well. And then we'll close the show as has become the norm with me handling your q and I'm going to use the brand new Marshall Pruitt Podcast countdown clock. Going to try and do it in one hour. And so I'm going to tell you when I get to that 60 minutes. And if you hear me talking afterwards, just forget the clock and don't count time because I will be going over it. But I'm going to try and do as many as I can in roughly an hour. It's 8.45 now on a Wednesday night. Let's get rocking and rolling with Mike, then Jacob. And then I will be back to you later to close the show with your questions. The Week in IndyCar here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. It's always a great episode when we have Mike Hull in the house. Mr. Hull, it's been, I don't know, about three months or so since your last week in IndyCar visit. I mean, you and I have probably spoken 47 times since then, so um, no big deal there. But nonetheless, how are you? Sounds like you're on the way maybe to the airport or something, knowing that you have a IndyCar test coming up here in less than 24 hours at Portland with young Oliver Askew behind the wheel. Yeah, I am actually driving to the Indianapolis airport uh, to get on our favorite airline, Southwest. <laughs> um, uh, Send free peanuts. Yeah, uh, yeah, peanuts, and uh, love that exit seat, The um, if I can get to it before somebody else does. Uh, yeah, going to Portland, we test there Wednesday, tomorrow. It'll be our tomorrow, Wednesday, with Oliver Askew. Uh, we've certainly followed his career since, uh, since he was a USA scholarship graduate, um, with interest, certainly. Um, and we want to find out, uh, firsthand, uh, uh, where his future might go. Uh, not necessarily with us, but, uh, certainly we want to find out, uh, if by reputation his talent level is what people say it is. Oh, I thought I was going to have to make the call to Dixie. Sorry, pal. Uh, enjoy your last couple races, buddy. We're putting you at your, I know you won the championship. I know you're the reigning champ, but we're putting you at your pasture. There's nothing left there. Well, let's do this. Let's jump into questions, Mike. A lot of great ones. Going to get through as many as we can before you have to pull up to the gate. Let's start off with Ed Joris. Got three in a row from Ed, and we've got a number here coming off of the hybrid announcement last week and some other fun stuff, too. Ed says, now that the hybrid plan is out in the open, what things get added to your long-term to-do list? Does this change any planning you are already doing? Does this mean that today's engine packages will be nearly frozen from now to the end of the 2021 season? Um, well, I, first of all, race teams, including Chip Ganassi Racing, are end users. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, our list never ends. You know, it, it doesn't have a, a – there isn't such a thing as you don't – you check your way all the way down the list. Uh, we have a great relationship with Honda. Honda drives a lot of the products, certainly, that, that we use to, to power our cars around the racetrack and, and do a great job of that. 
So we'll be dependent upon them for the short term through 2021, as well as the long term after that, uh, which then will include a CURS style system, which we have we have no knowledge, really. Race teams have no knowledge of what it's going to be at this point, other than what we we along with with the fans have collectively read. Uh, But what I like about IndyCar is the fact that they have engaged Chevrolet and Honda in the future. So IndyCar didn't just decide to do this on their own. They worked really, really hard with Honda and Chevrolet to get buy in there. And so the product that that we have, I think, will be the first step in a hybrid system. And I don't think it'll be the final step in the hybrid system, but I think you have to start somewhere. And frankly, without getting entwined with the political rhetoric that seems to go on about this from the fan base and, and for, and internally too, in fairness, uh, let's just see where it goes. Let's continue with Ed, who says one more from Mike says, clearly the hybrid plan is aimed at getting a new manufacturer. If there were a new manufacturer making plans now to join the series in 22, when would that manufacturer start talking to teams like yours and others about possibly joining up with them? And he also says counter to that, when would companies like Honda and Chevy start talking about trying to lock in a Ganassi or the rest of your rivals? Would that stuff even be going on now? I think it goes on. You know, we saw what just happened with Michael Andretti's team. You know, they signed a multi-year contract that I think will probably fall over into uh, 2022 or 2023. All the teams are on different uh, contractual arrangements with the manufacturers. So some will fall uh, fall over or, or extend past the new engine program. But I would say this. Uh, I don't think the, the reason to announce a hybrid technology in any any form of motorsports, whether it's Formula One, NASCAR, IMSA, WEC, IndyCar, is all about enticing more manufacturers to come in. I think what you need to do is read what's going on with the American automobile manufacturers and where their cars are going and the technology that they're going to need to employ. Uh, and, And what I truly, in a way, hate, frankly, is the fact that the federal government is dictating what we buy in the showroom. It's not the other way around anymore. The consumer doesn't dictate it anymore. It's the federal government. And it's all about the environmental, the EPA rules and uh, fuel economy and things like that. So hybrid technology is going to come on board in all showrooms. And in order for race teams to be uh, financially uh, representative going forward, They're going to need to embrace that technology because guess what? That's how the manufacturers will fund racing projects going forward. I don't think it's going to change the nature of racing at all. It's just what the manufacturers are doing uh, to understand fully or more in in a better way uh, the direction that their technology will go. And uh, that's why I think that the first version of what we run will not be the last version. Um, I think it's just a start. Another good point to tack on here, Mike, is many folks have mentioned, rightly so, hybrids. Didn't the Toyota Prius come out in 1990, whatever it was? You know, Hasn't this technology been around forever? Isn't this coming in awful late? Can't argue that, but would say that 
while it might be a bit late for adoption, this is the current state of the art. So this is truly IndyCar catching up to where the automotive industry is at today. Well, granted, I realize we're still a few years away from it coming in, but it's IndyCar recognizing we have fallen a bit behind the times. We need to at least catch up to where it's at, even if the that state of the art is a little bit long in the tooth. But to your point as well, it's also saying, okay, and we don't know exactly where things are going in the future uh, in the automotive world. We expect it to be more electric, less internal combustion engine, but let's at least connect ourselves to that and follow along. Then wherever it goes, hopefully, provided Jay Fry is in charge or maybe his successor, will realize that we need to stay in their world. Uh, I would love the idea of having 2,000 horsepower turbo, just call it pure motor, uh, internal combustion engine solutions. Um, as great as that is, that's what you'll find at the drag strip. Granted, it's like 6,000 horsepower. But if you're going to be a series that relies on manufacturers, you have to play in the realms that the manufacturers are interested in. And while Chevy and Honda have been amazing partners and have found relevance in the small displacement turbos that we've had, even they have said, heck, even Honda, uh, I've had, I had conversations back in 2012 when the new engine formula came out with Honda saying, yeah, we'd really like a hybrid. Uh, Chevy wasn't there. Chevy completely disagreed, but regardless, it's just interesting to note that while it's taken a good while, uh, it's not as if just in the past six months, one or two of IndyCar's manufacturers have said, oh, hey, hybrids. Uh, one of them has been pulling for them all along. So anyways, I'm glad to see an adjustment is going to be made. Let's go to Ed's last question for you, Mike. He says, how does the end, upcoming end, of the Ford GT IMSA program affect the rest of Ganassi? And I guess, uh, I don't know if you can talk about that in its entirety, Mike, but to anybody that enjoys both IndyCar and IMSA, they would know that if you were, say, at Road America last weekend watching the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship event won by the Ford Chip Ganassi Racing Team. There's lots of amazing drivers, crew, engineers, truck drivers, you name it. Um, guess you might have an interesting couple of months ahead trying to figure out who does what and where and how. I think it's a, you know, I, I, I do appreciate the question, and that question has been asked by a lot of people in certainly different ways to try to get us to make an announcement about what we're doing going forward. Uh, so I'd Can we announce at Stadium Super Trucks? Can we just go ahead and break uh, that I'd, news I'd here? I'd rather not, not really delve into to an answer that leads to speculation on where we're going next. But uh, we're working on a, on a program to go forward to keep people gainfully employed. Um, and uh, that's really the business side of what we do is it's hard to find really qu- – good quality people, but it's harder to keep them employed. Uh, and, uh, and it doesn't matter what the business might be. In this case, it's motorsports. And, uh, most of the people that work for us on the IMSA program are, uh, or were, uh, IndyCar people that as time has gone on, we've added more and more people to our sports car program from our IndyCar team. So it's a way of internal promotion, really. Um, and, uh, we'll work hard to keep those people employed. 
Go to Mike Jablo following the hybrid item. And again, it's probably not something either one of us can answer, but we know it'll be thought about. With the new hybrid formula, any concerns about the crashworthiness of the cars, especially on high-speed ovals, with the additional hybrid components like the battery cell and electric motors, it's definitely a unique area IndyCar is going to need to spend a lot of R&D effort on, Mike, knowing that, I mean, granted, it's not as if a Formula One car with its hybrid system, you know, crashing at a rouge at a million miles an hour is a slow or uh, a light impact. Would definitely say, though, that if we're talking the proverbial 235 into turn one at Indy, uh, boy, we know that we're probably staring at the highest rate of speed achieved in a crash with a hybrid racing system uh, in the world whenever that happens, because it will happen. This seems like an area that IndyCar would really need to actually chart some new safety territory, since, honestly, IndyCar would be the first to do high-speed ovals, if not ovals altogether, with a hybrid system. Um, you know, am I concerned about it? I'm always concerned about safety, yes. Uh, but the one thing that I think is really, really good is IndyCar uh, works really, really hard to have cars constructed in such a way to where they're, they're safe with the, with the many disciplines where we race. Um, and, yes, Indianapolis is a very, very fast place, and the car does come apart when you crash there. Uh, with all the safety enhancements that they've done to the current car and how they've changed everything, you know, they learn uh, as they go along sometimes from, from accidents on the racetrack. But the fact that the mere fact that uh, they're going to have a brand new race car that will have a lot of safety enhancement in, in it that we co- don't currently have, I would suspect that uh, uh, the uh, hybrid system will be housed in such a way to where uh, that won't even be a subject for us uh, going forward. From what I understand, Mike, and this is very early, so this could certainly change, but IndyCar is looking to contain the majority, I don't know if it's all, but the vast majority of the system within the bell housing, so that being the area that connects the actual uh, metal component that bridges and connects the back of the motor to the transmission. So as I understand the current thought process, that is where they intend on housing it. I have no idea what they do in terms of cooling, et cetera, et cetera, because that's all super, super hot. But provided that is the case, we would not necessarily have something hanging out in the side pod that would be broken away more easily in a crash. I mean, if you're snapping the car in half and the bell housing is exposed, that is, yeah, uh, that is the first thing being shown that night on Sports Center because it, it would be massive. So rare, though, rare that we have that kind of giant accident, but they do happen. But in theory, at least right now, Mike, they're looking at a place that certainly would not be easy to get to in the average crash. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Nick Vance. It says, Mike, I know that Scott Dixon had uh, the opportunity to experience the new aero screen in testing last month on a simulator. Curious to hear your thoughts on the Halo slash windscreen and what Chip Ganassi Racing is doing to get ready for it in competition starting next season. It says, do you anticipate having to approach setup differently because of it, or is it a non-issue 
Looking forward to you guys inside it always and hope to run into you at Pocono. This is a good one. Actually, I've got a little something to write about this, but let's talk about this here, Mike. Uh, what do you know? What do you think? What do you expect? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think it's a good thing to have. I, I think it uh, enhances the, um, the safety of the car a lot, the, the driver's safety, and that's really what this has been all about. Um, and uh, Red Bull had spent an awful lot of time uh, developing the system that uh, IndyCar is going to uh, to employ. Uh, and they weren't chosen for whatever reason by the FIA for Formula One, but that's fine. Uh, I, I know that there's going to be some testing in the fall at uh, road tracks, street tracks, and oval tracks uh, to get the to get the windscreen fully ready for for racing. Uh, in terms of answering the question about the preparation, uh, there's some modifications that have to be done to the existing monocoque, uh, particularly around the roll hoop area, to be able to uh, have a have, have the foundation for it. And then from there, I know it'll go onto the racetrack and be tested. Um, I, I think the version that we've seen uh, 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 artist renderings and photos of are very close to what we will test or somebody will test uh, in the fall. And uh, then from there, I think the plan is, as I understand it, is that IndyCar is going to have everybody get their monocoques modified postseason that all the teams will receive at least one windscreen system before the holiday and that testing with windscreens will begin after the holidays in terms of setup that's the third part of that question i think in terms of setup yes it is going to change the setups a bit because there's going to be weight distribution is going to go forward yep. with this thing and uh, so that's going to require a bit of a uh, bit of work on all the teams' part, more so perhaps with the uh, weight going forward for dri- the driver drive style and what the driver likes. Um, and the team will have to accommodate the driver in that case. Uh, so we'll see where that ends up. Um, but I suspect it'll move forward a bit. Uh, probably the area where it, the racetracks where that's affected mo- most is mid corner. Um, whether it be a high-speed oval or whether it be a street track or road track. Uh, so that's we, we fight with that or we work with that all the time. Every time Firestone makes a, makes a tire change, not so much weight forward, but just getting the car balanced to accept uh, what we have to do. So in this case, be very similar to what we do when we test, test uh, at a racetrack when we have a new tire profile. Uh, so I don't expect that it's a, a deal breaker by any stretch of the imagination. I know some race engineers have expressed their concerns about the potential forward migration of weight distribution and some of the items that have been suggested to correct that. And so I think there's going to be a lot of talking and, quote, negotiating with IndyCar to rectify some of that. But, again, these are all items that can be solved if there is a willingness on both sides to make that happen. So. Well, let's face it, um, uh, all of us have our hand over the nest with setups. <laughs> and uh, uh, when you have something that works, and then IndyCar or, or somebody else throws a curveball at you, you know, you've got to bring a reliever in and fix it. So uh, <laughs> uh, um, I, I think that that's just part of the process. Uh, uh, what you do in racing is you accept change as quickly as you can and uh, get the troops all working in the right direction to 
make things better with the changes that you have. And uh, let's face it, this change is really, really important. Uh, so uh, I think all the teams will bear down and figure it out. Next question is from our dear friend, Chris Pantani, the beloved man in charge of Cooper tires, motor racing and special events who as the first primary sponsor of the podcast here, definitely someone near and dear to my heart and our ongoing partner. He says, Mike, when will Chip Ganassi start a road to Indy team like Indy lights to help develop your own talent in terms of drivers and team personnel. So a little nudge there from uh, a man who is central to the road to Indy, wondering when we can start penciling in that Chip Ganassi racing versus Andretti Autosport battle. I like the, I like the question, Chris. Uh, we, have, we, we have it. You're not the first person that's asked that question, and I know you won't be the last. Uh, with a, I don't know what to say about the future. Uh, in terms of uh, ladder series participation on our part. Uh, presently, we're not involved in that. We watch it very closely. Um, and uh, it, frankly, it would have to be right for us to be able to do that with the amount of effort that it would take to, to get that program up and running. Um, we're just not, as of today, in a position to be able to do that. You know, one thing I've been curious about, Mike, and this isn't maybe a uh, add-on to Chris's question. So if I look at the Harding-Steinbrenner racing team, we know that while they are a separate entity owned by uh, folks not named Michael Andretti, we do know that Andretti Technologies in the outsourcing of proprietary damping setup, race engineers, it's that commercially available service made available by Michael to the Harding Steinbrenner team that has made Harding Steinbrenner and Colton Herta so competitive this year. Could you foresee anything like that in the future with Chip Ganassi racing, whether it's, Hey, we only want to run two cars, but we could indeed supply under super quadruple non-disclosure agreement, you know, we could rope someone in and be hired as a technical partner and supply race engineers uh, to a fellow IndyCar team, expanding us in theory to three or four cars maybe without having to run them, but also maybe even on the partnering on, say, the Indy Lights level, where instead of it being the, quote, Chip Ganassi team, you think there could be a time in the future where things like this Andretti Technologies thing could be something to consider? I think it's a great idea. I, I, I applaud Michael and Mike Harding for what they're doing there in, as partners to uh, develop uh, Colton Herta, have him someplace to race. He has someplace to race an IndyCar. That, that's a really good thing. Uh, and uh, young talent, our opinion about young talent, no matter the level of talent they have, in this case with Colton, you'd say that he's at the top of the heap when it comes to that. Uh, it still takes, as we've seen with uh, drivers like Colton or Felix on, in, in our case, uh, uh, Marcus Erickson, people who have ability and have come from other areas of racing, it still takes them at least one solid year, maybe two solid years before you can reap the benefit of what they do. And so um, there are reasons for that, but that's the reality of it. 
look at New Garden three years before he started to really produce. Um, so I, I think it takes an owner who's willing to spend time somehow, either with a development arm or with 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 a program that allows young drivers to develop in the IndyCar in an IndyCar, not in a sports car, not in a lights car, not anywhere else, but has to learn under fire and has the uh, the backing of in this case two collective owners to make it happen. So I applaud what they're doing. Uh, we have talked to, about doing that, um, but nothing's happened at this point for us. So uh, uh, we'll see what the future, how, how the future goes here. Let's go to Michael Goodyear, who's got our last question on Facebook. And then we'll jump over to Twitter, grab a few there, and then we're going to let you on to the rest of your day, sir. Says Mike, after the exciting one-two finish at Mid Ohio with Scott Dixon and Felix Rosenquist. I was transported back to a time uh, and to another certain one-two Ganassi finish at Mid-Ohio from 1996. He asks, what are the similarities, if any, between the current lineup and the days of Jimmy Vassar and Alex Zanardi? He says, it struck me that in Vassar, as in Dixon, you have an experienced, laid-back, even-keeled type teaming up with an up-and-coming European talent. Maybe it's just me wanting to draw comparisons where there are none, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how your legendary duo of the 1990s corresponds or differs from the current lineup, which I believe will soon is soon to be legendary as well. Um, I think it's very similar, certainly. Um, uh, in the present day, uh, what, what's in common is that uh, you have two very talented teammates who, like Alex and Jimmy, the present day Dixon and Rosenquist are, are totally unselfish with each other, as we saw at the, at the end of the race there, but we see it uh, internally all the time. Uh, one who's trying to help the other one learn because it's a benefit to both of them um, when they can learn about what the racetrack is doing for each other. Um, so I, I think in a way it's very similar. Uh, and uh, in uh, our system, I think as well as the Penske system or Andretti system or any of the others, I think it's very, very unselfish between the teammates. And there's no clear number one or number two. And so when you have that situation, you end up uh, with, uh, with the challenge of the other driver being uh, driving you upward. And so I, I think it is very similar. We've had great pairs of teammates over the years, and uh, that's all. That's all really as a result of what Chip sees in people. Um, and uh, he he has a great eye for talent, but he has a great eye for somebody who can be a team player, and uh, that's probably what's in common. Let's go to our man Peter Nutt, who says, "Mike, if you could choose one European track to hold an IndyCar race, what would it be?" Oh, in my mind, no question, Spa. <laughs> of course. No question. If, as an American, if, if, you, if you want to go to one racetrack outside of North America, one time in your life, plan a trip to Spa. And take the time to walk the old racetrack when you're there, even if you have to have an umbrella. Uh, because it is absolutely spectacular. I would say IndyCar needs to sign up for the month of spa, right? I mean, let's just do four 
consecutive races, four consecutive weekends. We'll change direction weekend on weekend, right? I mean, let's just have some fun here. Uh, let's get to the last couple of here, Mike. Uh, this one comes in from Nick Fletcher. He says, Mike, could you share the story of Dan Weldon driving the Riley Lexus Grand Am car, Daytona prototype, on his very first stint in 2006 at the 24 Hours of Daytona? He said, you've shared it previously, but he would love to hear the story again. Well, first of all, I would tell you that uh, that car is going to be on display, going to be running uh as part of Lexus's program at the Historics uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. Yes. Uh, Joy Hand is meant to drive that car out there for us. That's the car that had the uh, the target bullseyes all over it. <laughs> and it, it was the car that won. It was the car where we won the 24 Hours of Daytona in 2006. It was our very first win there. Uh, and the drivers there were Dixon, uh, Dan Weldon, and uh, Casey Mears. Yeah. Uh, who were the three target drivers at the time, Casey and NASCAR and Dan and Scott in, uh, in IndyCar racing. Um, yeah, the short version of that story is that uh, we we put those three drivers together, and that was the second team. You know, we had a frontline team, the team that everybody thought would win the race, and nobody gave us enough. Nobody gave us – they didn't give us the time of the day there. They didn't think we had a chance. And uh, – uh, and it was all IndyCar people that were working on that car. That, you know, that was like our off-season project. <laughs> so uh, the, I can't remember. I think Dan might have been the third one up. Dixon started. Casey was in the middle, and Dan was third. And Dan got in the car after maybe, I don't think we double-stinted there, so probably two, four. Uh, the fifth hour or sixth hour of running, Dan was in the car. And uh, he, in fairness, uh he was used to driving a, 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 a sequential gearbox. That car was not a, a sequential gearbox at the time. Uh, and uh, so he just crashed the heck out of the, out of the gearbox. And uh, first he started missing shifts. And then all of a sudden we didn't have fifth gear. Um, so we had told him that, uh, I, and I was on the radio with him and telling Dan, you gotta, you gotta fix yourself or, or we're going to be out of this race. And, uh, we ended up having to change the gear stack and some other parts under a full course yellow and uh, rode Dan pretty hard when he got out of the car. And he was much better when he got back in for his next stint. And by the time he got into another stint, he was, he was really, really good at it. But uh, the part of the story that was great was he was like a, he he was like he had his tail between his legs every time he came to the timing stand uh, looking for forgiveness and which we weren't going to give him. And, uh, you know, he's, he was the ultimate put on artist. That was his reputation. And, and, uh, he didn't think I was. So, uh, about five o'clock in the morning, four thirty, five o'clock, he was up, he was due to, to, I don't know, be on the, be in the car again, like it's daybreak or something, seven o'clock. And he said, is there anything I can do for you guys? You know, you've been up all night. Uh, you know, I, I want to do everything right and all that. And I said, yeah, you know, there's a Denny's across the street. Uh, I think. And I said, the three of us up here on the timing stand could use three grand slams. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he got in his rent car and drove across the street in his driver uniform and got three grand stamps and brought him back to the timing stand. And uh, uh, (laughs) he didn't realize at the time that I was just putting him on, but it was great breakfast. And... uh, (laughs) But uh, we ended up winning that race, even though we we spent... uh, 
we, we had to get our laps back, uh, but we only lost, uh, we didn't lose that much time because it was a full course yellow when we made all those changes on the race car. And uh, that really helped to gel Dan and uh, Scott together. It was really a great exercise in teamwork, although at the time we didn't realize quite what we were doing there. Um, and uh, the two of them went on to do great things together for us. Um, as a pair of drivers. So that kind of reflects back to the question that I, we were asked earlier. Um, that was another great pair of people that we had for a long period of time, and each of them participated for the other. Um, and uh, that was a great experience, especially for IndyCar people who really were unfamiliar. Most of them were unfamiliar with sports car racing at the time uh, to go and do what they did there. It's funny how here, 13 years later, it's impossible to picture Chip Ganassi racing as anything other than a sports car team, among all the other series that you're in, but it's just become such a an indelible part of uh, of who and what the program is and has become. Uh, also, I'm hoping, hoping to be able to get to the uh, historics here at Monterey, which would be my first time back to a racetrack in a long time, to see the beloved 2006 uh, Rolex 24 winner. Know. Yeah, I know people could probably Google and find pictures of that car, uh, but when it showed when it arrived at the racetrack, it had on the on the door of the car, as I recall, it had a big bullseye, um, and maybe and there was like one bullseye on the roof of the car, and that was about it. There weren't hardly any other bullseyes on the car. And Chip showed up at the racetrack and said to Tim Keene, who ran the who, was, who ran that team, he said, "This is a Target sponsored car, isn't?" And he said, "Yes." He said, where's all the bullseyes? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so he and Tim put bullseyes on the entire race car. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I think it was terrific. You know, Target was a big, uh, big help to us as a partner for many, many years. And uh, they, they received so much uh, notoriety after we won that race uh, globally uh, and nationally. Uh, when they fully only expected to re- receive notoriety for racing Indy cars, um, yeah, it was a it was a great experience for them too. And Max Pappas was driving for you. Was he driving for you at that time? I'm trying to remember. Uh, I think he was. I think he was in the other car. He was in the Telmax car. Okay. Well, I'm, I guess my point being is it's yeah. a good thing he was on your team because <laughs> a car at Daytona with a bullseye on it. I mean, that's just inviting well, Max Pappas yeah. contact, but, uh, yeah, well, it was, I don't know. I, yeah, I would, I would say about Max, um, he drove for us the very first season when we won the championship. We, we really couldn't, uh, we couldn't find our way for the endurance races, but we won enough sprint races to win the championship in 2004. Uh, so Max was with us that first year and, Frankly, I, I don't think I'd ever seen a driver in the dark that could do what Max could do in the dark with a sports car. Mm. His depth perception and understanding how to get through traffic in the dark was absolutely phenomenal. And uh, when Casey Mears got in the car in the middle of the night, uh, the 01 car, which Max, they put Pappas in at that point, they left the pit lane, Casey left the pit lane right behind him, and and uh, I said to Casey on the radio, I just said, because Casey was freaked out about driving in the dark. And I said, it's, it's easy now. You've got a roadmap right in front of you. 
just go to school on this guy. You're going to be in here for two or three stints, and so is he. And he did. He, he hung with him for well over three hours. Uh, and that really helped us at that point in the race, uh, both cars, but certainly the O2 car, which uh, Casey was in. Um, and I think without Max uh, uh, as, as, a, as a guide for Casey there, we would have probably lost some track position as a result. So, uh, And Casey certainly did an admirable job following Max around the racetrack. And so, yeah, terrific, terrific drive, sports car driver and in the dark. I, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody as good as he is. Wow. Well, let's close, Mike, on a question from Twitter and one I'll roll in back from Facebook. They're on similar themes. Uh, on one end, you're asked, what is the most important piece of data that you are following on the timing stand? And then Paul Hirsch asks something that you get every couple times you visit. When it comes to calling strategy, Mike, do you use software? Is it based on experience or maybe a combination of the two? Well, let's see. We'll go to the, the second question first. It's, uh, it, it's a combination of the two. Uh, we have historical information that really helps us on, try to understand with probability what could happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that it will. And we have a simulation engineer that's feeding our ear on the intercom constantly with that information. So that does actually help. Um, in terms of the data that helps us maybe the most in, 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 in uh, trying to understand what to do, uh, Racing is all like if you could look at racing, if you could look at the racetrack from uh, a drone and look down on the racetrack to understand the positioning of all the cars on the racetrack um, and then understand when they pitted, uh, what the time interval is to them, what the time interval is for you when you come in the pit lane how many stops they have and what their time interval will be through the stops. Then you compare that information to yourself. We have that information in front of us and racing is all about time interval uh, spacing on the racetrack. Forget about yellows, forget about all of that. It, it's, it's, it's the track position that you try to create uh, with the most open track position on fresh tires for the longest period of time, if that makes sense. And, uh, uh, at Mid-Ohio, as an example, you want to try to get in and out of the pits into the most opportune spacing for the first 10 to 15 laps on that set of tires when they're the freshest. I mean, naturally, people are going to cycle in and out. Somebody's going to get in front of you and all of that. But you try to understand the gapping that does happen as everybody begins to pit. And then you have the complexity also of people that are on different strategies. Um, so that weighs, a, that, that's a big weight in terms of making decisions. But, uh, the reality is what you really truly look at, uh, to answer the question is, uh, uh, the most open track position for the longest period of time. I love it. How about a data channel? Is there a single data channel? And that's not necessarily tied to strategy, but is there a data channel you love to look at more than others? We all do. We all have the one that we're we kind of rely upon to gauge something. What's the one data piece you love? It's strictly related to that. We have we have software that's built around uh, timing interval on the racetrack, all the timelines, and um, so that's a proprietary thing that we've built. But that's what we use. And you know what? I would think most of the teams have a similar a similar data uh, 
program that does that for them. Um, so it's not spec, <laughs> but it's uh, probably very similar uh, from team to team, and and they all rely on that. Uh, but in order to be able to do that properly, you have to have a race driver that understands that you're doing it. Because you cannot manipulate from the pit lane what you need the car to do without talking to the driver about it. Um, and uh, you certainly talk to the driver about it before the race begins, but the driver then understands what has to happen for you to, to have some, some level of success uh, using that uh, proprietary software. And there you have it, friends. The latest visit by our dear friend, Michael, managing director of the Chip Ganassi Racing Team, on the weekend IndyCar. Time for you to okay. head west, a little yeah. bit north of your birthplace, the uh, the delightful <laughs> Southern California that made Michael, but the Pacific Northwest, not a bad thing at all. Look forward to hearing how things go with young Oliver Askew, current Indy Lights championship leader and someone who's looking awful strong to hold on to that title and move into IndyCar next year with at least three races plus Indy 500 as uh, the the prize for winning the title. So look forward to speaking tomorrow, Mike, and hearing how uh, the young buck went and how the visit in general goes. Good old Portland International Raceway. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it very much. And appreciate the questions. Uh, I don't know if we did them all justice, but uh, we tried. (laughs) That's why we keep doing this. We keep trying to come back and do a better job. So thanks as always, sir. Well, it's our time for Road to Indie Awesomeness. Jacob Abel, so happy to see you become a growing presence on the Road to Indie, a family-run team as well. Kind of stirs my heart since so much of what I did in my youth was working for owner-drivers or small family-run teams. I really look at our opportunity here to catch up as Kind of a get-to-know Jacob Abel for those who maybe focus most heavily on the Indy light side of the road to Indy. Let's get going with where you come from, Southern kid, motor racing in your blood, but it's not like you've been doing this since you were three years old. No, I actually haven't. Um, I got a relatively late start, actually. Um, I think I only did my first go-kart race when I was like 12, and it was um ancient southern ancient right right yeah back to that southern thing it was actually at a a dirt oval uh go-kart track um in in clark (laughs) county indiana so (laughs) so yeah definitely definitely come a long way since then but but yeah super thankful for it so let's talk about racing and is this a family thing is this something where like me and like many others my father's passion for motor racing and introduction to it helped stoke my own interest. How did it come into your world? Yeah, I think it's it's just that, actually. Um, my dad grew up, he was actually racing motocross, um, did that at a pretty high level um, until he unfortunately got in, in a really bad accident um, and had a pretty bad injury, and my mom sort of told him to stop. Um, but But then... Yeah, then he obviously took a break from racing for a bit. And then I think maybe like 10, 15 years ago now, he got into to vintage car racing. Um, and that's sort of how we got into car racing. And, and the whole vintage thing, you usually do it 
pretty much on your own. So that's sort of how the whole able racing, able motorsports thing developed. Um, and then that sort of carried into me once I got through karting and, and started into, um, open wheel racing, we sort of developed that team into what it is today from, from that vintage start. So what do your parents do? What, tell us about the, the environment you grew up in, not only from a work standpoint and your, your parents and such, but what was the able household like growing up too? Was it all about sport education, a little bit of the two combined? Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of all of that. Um, I'm actually the youngest of three children. Um, I have an older brother and older sister. Um, they were both huge into sports. My sister was a huge golfer, um, won some huge tournaments and stuff like that. And then my brother was a really big lacrosse player, won state tournaments with that. So I had big shoes to fill. Um, we're definitely a really competitive family. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, so yeah, that's sort of sort of where I come from. Just big, big competitive. Want to win everything we we get into and and yeah so so yeah that sort of fueled the whole racing thing now you were born in 2001 the same year that was my final year working as a working on the team side and indycar on the engineering side so a it's really depressing um (laughs) but looking at everything that you've done since 2001 it does seem like Man, uh, eating cereal in the morning that would be a competition among your brother and sister tying your shoes. Yeah, is that was that something that mom or dad was that part of their personality that was infused upon the able kids, or is that something that you all just kind of came up with on your own? Yeah, so I'm not really sure. Um, it's not like they were super intense of like pressuring us and and like like you see like those little league baseball parents like yelling at their kids, making them go outside and hit baseballs all day. It wasn't really like that. You only hit um, a triple. You're no son yeah, of mine. Exactly. Exactly. Um, no, it was just sort of, I don't really know where it came from. I think genetics, cause obviously my dad grew up racing and was super competitive with that. And, and my mom and her and her own things was obviously really competitive too. So, so yeah, I mean, I think just a little bit of everything. So, among the other things I appreciate about where you're at career wise, Jacob is we're talking youth high school students wanting to become a professional race car driver, doing that through, I would say modest family team. It's not as if, you know, you're out there with giant trillions of dollars doing this and the yeah. kind of indie mid tier road to indie, the indie pro 2000 level, yep. but rather than just being, the quote prince or princess of Instagram. And here I am in the gym all day and grind rise and grind hashtag and all that kind of nonsense. (laughs) You're actually incorporating something I love to see with young drivers. And that is, I have a real job too. Now, granted it's, I should say granted it's being a a race car driving instructor, but the yep. fact that you're not just doing the uh, the the rise and grind, uh, gym tan laundry routine, I love that. Right. Tell us about that because that is a little bit unique. Yeah, so it's it's really cool actually. Um, one of my coaches, you probably probably know him, uh, Scott Harrington. Oh yes. Um, 
so he works at the mid Ohio school there. Um, and that's actually how I first got my start in car racing. Um, I'd been karting for a few years and and then back to the competitiveness, me and my whole entire family, actually all five of us, mom, dad, and brothers and sisters all went to a racing school, um, at the mid Ohio school. And, and after that, I sort of kept in touch with everyone there. And then through Scott sort of, sort of went there a couple summers ago to, to learn the ropes a little bit and, and get a, get a little bit of extra seat time. Um, and then this summer I, I finally turned 18. So I finally could actually legally work there. So, so yeah, I've sort of started that this year and it's been, it's been really fun. I was Scott's assistant engineer for one day. For uh, one day. I believe oh, no. it was the, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was 2000, uh, at, Indy 500 rookie orientation. Um, okay. So yeah, I think I uh, I have one day of Scott Harrington on my resume being his assist uh, as the assistant race engineer. So there you go. yeah, I mean, f- yeah. But granted, not like he would a remember or ever want to put that on his <laughs> resume. But oh uh, no, I'm sure. I'm sure. So he'll, let's he'll talk. Tell me all about it. Oh yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your recent road to indie graduation again you're only in cars now for about four you know a handful of years came in through the usf 2000 championship fairly you know normal routine last year you did some of the uh the formula three stuff with the family two prior to that uh, or i should say 20 i apologize 2017 in uh, usf 2000 yeah. Tell us so, about this rapid progression, because that's another thing unique to you, right? It's not as if you've had this just lifelong karting thing right. and you blew through USF 2000. You're one of those, despite being young, Jacob, you're still having to do a heck of a lot of, call it making up ground, uh, racing education-wise, yeah. while on the road to Indy here. Yeah, that's sort of been a common theme ever since I first stepped into a go-kart i mean i didn't even do i don't know how familiar you are with karting but i didn't even do really the cadet ranks or anything like that um i just jumped straight into the junior class which is actually pretty big um and then i did like one or two like local club races and have in mind most people will do like a couple of years of club races before they even go to like a regional race but i did like two club races and then straight into a national race um and then like straight into like even bigger races after that. And then was doing that for like two years. And then it was boom, straight into F4, which was my first step in cars, which was, I, I was still relatively new to everything. I mean, I only had like two, maybe three years in karting, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, and then did F4 for a bit. And then we did a couple of one-off USF 2000 races. Um, but then, I mean, this is this is actually my first full season in the road to Indy, um, and it's in Indy Pro 2000, which I mean, we got guys like Parker Thompson and Kyle Kirkwood, and and those guys who have obviously had a bunch of success and been in the road to Indy for for a little bit now. Um, so it's it's definitely a really steep learning curve. Um, but I mean, I, I've got a really good support system around me with guys like obviously Parker Thompson, my teammate, who's been in the road to Indy for some like five years now. Um, so he can, so I'm really just trying to absorb everything I can. And then even last year in F3, I was teammates with Kyle Kirkwood, who's obviously a a really well-known name in, in open wheel racing right now. So, so yeah, I've just been trying to soak up everything I can from everyone around me. And it's, uh, it's been pretty good so far. 
Well, let's get to your current season. As you mentioned, the young and sexy Canadian that the Red Deer, <laughs> Alberta, Canada is Parker yep. Thompson. Obviously, I think really helped folks put the Able Motorsports name on the map right out of the gate at St. Petersburg this year. Yeah. Let's talk about yep. this dynamic. An interesting one, I would say, Jacob, because having a veteran and a proven veteran like Parker to be able to help you uh, from a coaching standpoint, help the team, right? Some setup wise, maybe yep. just help shape the team towards being, you know, successful. Certainly a high value for you at the same time. You and your father don't wake up saying, how can we get Parker Thompson to IndyCar? Not that you wouldn't love to see him yeah. there, but ultimately there's a, a kid named Abel who you're wanting to get there. Tell us yep. about this dynamic of working with someone who can help, but also knowing the ultimate goal here is shifted towards you, not pr necessarily promoting bunches of other drivers up the ladder. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting, actually, because obviously – you have my dad who's running the team um, and he has to do everything he can really to not be sort of biased towards me when we have other drivers in the field um, or other drivers on the team rather who are, who are paying to be there and, and need to get what they, what they pay for and stuff like that. So, but yeah, no, it's Parker's been insanely helpful. Um, I've just been trying to soak up everything I can for him from him um, and not even just the driving stuff, just how he operates. And that's one thing I learned from Kyle as well. Last year is just soaking up all of this stuff, um, like how they do debriefs after the race, like how they do track maps and things like that, how they present themselves to sponsors and, and other people like that. And I've just sort of been soaking all that up and just trying to pick the best parts from, from all of them and trying to make me the best I can from them. If that sort of makes sense. Well, if you're picking it all up, trying to figure out how to be the worst, that would be very strange. So I'd say you definitely <laughs> right. have the, uh, the right approach. Let's get to uh, the handful of questions that came in for you first one is from the cookie lady i don't know if you've oh, met yeah. the cookie Cindy. lady but, uh, of course she's a she's a big jacob abel and abel motorsports supporter if um, you've got get, the support of the cookie lady in the paddock you're doing something right because well yep. a anybody who's handing out cookies tends to make people happy but uh yeah she uh she brings care packages for not every driver but for specific people and yep. uh so if you're on that list already man you're i we can pretty much count when you're going to be at the Indy 500. So she asks, well, let's hope so. Jacob, what's been your biggest struggle so far this season? And where do you think your biggest improvement has been? Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, I think these two, as, as strange as it sounds, kind of go hand in hand um, because some of the struggles turn into the biggest improvements. Like, for example, Toronto, I just made a, a really big mistake in the first practice there um, and, and put the car into the wall um, losing all the track time in the first practice. And then unfortunately, um, an incident, no one's really at fault for it, but in qualifying one left us with no track time there either. So we're going to qualifying two. And so we had two of the five sessions on the weekend already taken out. Um, and so we went into qualifying two. I've, I've, I've never been to Toronto before and we absolutely had like no track time there. Um, so like going into that, that was obviously a huge struggle, but, but through the weekend, I think we ended up with like a, a sixth and a fifth finish or something like that, or maybe sixth and a seventh, um, which has turned out to be some of our, some of our better performances on the year. 
Um, so that's sort of the thing is like Toronto started as a huge struggle, but then it was one of the, the biggest improvements like throughout the weekend. Um, and then, yeah, just, just the main struggle, just the general theme is just learning everything. Cause most of these guys have been to all these tracks and, and things like that before, whether it be in USF 2000, um, or an Indie Pro 2000 before. Um, so stuff like street courses, it's my first time pretty much everywhere. It was my first time at St. Pete this year, first time at Toronto. Um, and then you have the ovals as well, which is, so it was my first time at Lucas oil and it's going to be my first time at gateway too. So that's just, I'm obviously a little bit behind the eight ball there. Um, never having been to any of these, even in a USF 2000 car. Um, so that's a little bit of a struggle, but I think we're, we're doing pretty well, all things considered. Come back here to something we touched on a little bit already, and that comes in from Ted Nes- Nesbitt asking, what does it mean to have Parker Thompson as a teammate? Where, I guess, looking at the other aspects of where you want to go, have you picked up anything from Parker on the, I would say, maybe presentation side? He's very, yeah. very solid in not just making sure that he's dressed sharp, etc., but he's got a knack for being in front of people, uh, engaging them and such, as you well know, and everybody on the road to Indy, Indy yep. knows, it's not just about turning the steering wheel and, and stepping on the pedals. What have you maybe picked up from Parker on that side you think you can use? Yeah, so I mean, really, I, I think you, you had a lot of it. I mean, just just all of it, really, um, being really well-dressed and trying to be as well-spoken as you can and, and getting your face out there as much as you possibly can is obviously really big and Parker is one of the best people in the road to Indy that knows that. Um, so it definitely helps to learn off him. Um, and yeah, like I said, all the little things like dressing well at the track, I've tried to, tried to, um, um, spice up my wardrobe a little bit to try and compete with him. Uh, but spicy wardrobe. I like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We always, we always have a, a little competition to see who can, who can dress better at the track. So, so yeah, that's, that's a little fun thing, but, but yeah, so all, all things like that. And then he's just, I mean, we all, we share a hotel together every race weekend. So, I mean, I, I see pretty much what he does 24 seven on a race weekend. Yeah. You see, it sounds like you might see too much as well, but that, that's a, <laughs> no, that's no. a different podcast altogether. <laughs> oh no, but, but yeah, it really helps. I mean, yeah, like you said, all the, all the little things and everything away from the track is just big. Let's close with a question from Brett Ross. It says, have you enjoyed the instructing at Mid-Ohio? Have you met Brian Till and Tommy Byrne? Oh, good Lord. Uh, they're going to have <laughs> you drinking and smoking out behind the tower if that happens. Yeah, um, right. And Brett also asks, what kind of vintage cars does your dad race? Or has he raced? Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and start with that one. So he has a – oh, this is probably bad. It's – something late 60s early 70s alfa romeo gtv uh, yeah. sedan um so, so he likes working on the car a lot is what you're telling us <laughs> yeah right yeah um no so then and then he also has um i don't know if you're familiar but a shelby can-am car um uh, scott she- raced that <laughs> you have uh, a yeah, sh- he races a shelby canned ham yes i <laughs> built one ham. i built yep. one once did you? Uh, wow. Oh, <laughs> this is turning into the bizarre, bizarre anecdotes 
from MP's <laughs> career as a race car mechanic and engineer. Yes. And the Scott Harrington angle is perfect as well because he was certainly yep. one of the monsters of the SCCA Pro Racing Shelby Canned Ham era. Wow, that's hilarious. Canned Ham. Yep. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's one of the main reasons he got that was because of Scott. And then a guy who plays a huge role on our team, uh, Larry Nash. I, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's but, who I worked for in IndyCar. Good Lord. Here we yep. go again. Yes. Yeah. In 99. <laughs> Uh, worked for LP Racing, uh, which was Larry's team that he ran. And then the Harrington ROP was with Larry that one day. And then I yep. worked with him again when he ran Sam Schmidt's team in 2001 when Sam debuted as an IndyCar team owner. So little did I know. Well, well there you go. Little did I know. <laughs> small racing world's really small. I love it. Yep. Well, then, all right, let's close on Till and Burn. I mean, for all the positive positives we just discussed about being around parker thompson you now have <laughs> two big negatives to protect yourself against no no um no but i know tommy Byrne a little bit um he's sort of through scott and that i i actually have not yet instructed alongside him um but but brian till we've instructed alongside each other a few times and his son actually is instructing at the school too and he's about my age so it's it's kind of cool because we're the two like obviously really young guys and then you have like the guys like till and uh scott who are who are really the age of like our dads i mean it is um <laughs> is that but but yeah so so yeah we get along really well too all right so the last item here have you either read tommy's autobiography crashed and burned or watched the documentary yeah both um and so you still choose to return to this school to be around him wow wow yep. you are a man of faith jacob i i really appreciate this oh uh, yeah actually it's it's funny actually because in high school and uh, like the last i think it was like a couple of years ago or something we had like a project where we got to choose a book to to do a project on and i chose that and then it, i had to present it which was interesting to say the least but but no it was it was really cool well, love what you're doing. Look forward to you continuing on the road to Indy, knowing that you are learning at a very rapid rate. Still lots more to learn, so at least from the outside, doesn't look like there's any huge rush to have to run up to Indy Lights right away. But nonetheless, yep. happy to see that you are indeed learning, growing, getting faster. Results are stepping up race by race. Really happy we've taken some time here to get to know you a little bit, Jacob, and Hopefully we'll have you back on here before too long. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, and and yeah, thank you, everyone, who's, who's listening. Thanks again to Jacob Abel and Michael for spending some time with us here. Now it's time to get into your questions for me. And I hope you can hear it in the background. I'm going to hit the button. Oh, there's the beep. The one-hour timer has started. It's counting up, actually. Maybe I should have a countdown. It's counting up. We're going to get to as many as we can in 60 minutes or so. And I have moved the majority of your questions regarding silly season to the top. And we'll also get into some hybrid stuff and all kinds of fun. So let's get rocking and rolling here. Starting off with Ben Cohen. Says MP with the announcement of Rossi back to Andretti and Honda. What large movements in the paddock do you predict with your magic eight ball? Lance Snyder says 
with most, if not all, the major players in their seats for next year. Could this be one of the quietest silly seasons in recent memory? As I slur my words, I should stop drinking. Uh, Justin says, any update on the McLaren SPM situation? Saw reports that someone from SPM was in Budapest for the Grand Prix this past weekend. What do you think the deadline would be for McLaren to enter IndyCar for 2020? Would they have to have something in place by the season end or year's end? And then the last submission on this topic, my favorite, comes from Jim Johnstone. Thanks for sending this, Jim. Marshall, after reading Jim Iello's article about McLaren SPM and their possible partnership, want to say here quickly, going to miss having Jim on the IndyCar trail, knowing that he is being moved over to cover the Indianapolis Colts. Really good guy. Brought a lot of uh, youth and enthusiasm to a reporting base that's maybe skewing a little older than I'd hoped. So was hoping Jim was going to carry the torch here for decades to come, but I guess we're on the search for another young Jedi. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, Jim says, I've used my own powers of random speculation to suss out exactly what is going to happen. McLaren will succeed with a buyout or partnership of Aero SPM. They will rename themselves Schmidt Peterson Aero McLaren Racing, a.k.a. Spam Racing. (laughs) Honda will wave their finger at Spam and remind them that engines are off the table if McLaren is involved. Honda will remind them that they have a personal services contract with the mayor of Hinchtown. Many hours of negotiations will take place. And in the end, Honda will release spam from their engine contract, freeing them up to switch to Chevy in exchange for the mayor being released from his contract. Spam will then quickly sign young Mr. Herta, Felipe Nazar, and they'll both drive the number five and number seven Chevys. Honda will push their free engines and other Honda support down the financially to the financially questionable Harding Steinbrenner pit and gently nudge Hinch into that pit, pat him on the head and say, this is your new home, son. Hinch will take that HSR ride in the kick-ass damper support from Andretti Technologies and go on to win the 2020 championship. I mean, I, I just, I'm, thanks for sending in your letters. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. I mean, Jim, A, you got it all figured out, and B, spam. <laughs> you win. I think they're forever going to be known as spam. A um, lot of things to touch on here quickly, as quick as I can. So, Ben, there are definitely some movements. I've been working on a silly season piece for about two, three weeks now, and it still isn't done. And it seems like every time I think I'm done with it, I hear about something else. And it's not necessarily related to <clears throat> McLaren, SPM, whatever. Just, yeah, there is actually a lot going on. And Lance, to yours, about this being the <clears throat> quietest, could this be one of the quietest? That's um, actually the, the open to the silly season that I'd started was, and we thought the silly season was over when Alexander Rossi re-signed with Andretti and Andretti inked a new deal with Honda. How silly indeed. Uh, yeah, there's a lot going on. A lot of people talking to a lot of people. So let's stick with the primary questions that have come in, though, um, just because we do have an hour and I could spend all hour laying out the variety of things that I've heard, the things that I think um, might end up doing that next week. Who knows with Robin? Robin and I maybe we'll try and do a silly season podcast, which we've done at least once a year. Uh, let's see, just looking through a few of the other ones. Uh, from Justin, your qu- question was on timeline. Uh, it would certainly need to be laid out 
between now and the end of the season, simply because if we're talking general contracts, you have a lot of drivers with negotiating windows, timelines set out where they would have to either re-up with who they're with or not. So, yeah, uh, it would have to happen quickly uh, for anything to come together here. On the spam angle and everything you've laid out, Jim, of who goes where and Honda doing this and uh, Hinch doing that. So that's the biggest angle that's come out of all this. And again, given full kudos to Jim Aiello and the uh, the breaking article that he put out, whatever that was, a week ago or so. Uh, I think, as I mentioned last week, that had been floating around the paddock for a while. Um, and good on Jim for solidifying uh, a number of things to put it out as something that could happen. The engine angle is the most involved aspect altogether and of some of the things that i've heard this week the most intelligent one is this i know for a fact that there is one year left on the aero spm and honda supply deal one year through 2020 on the surface we also know for a fact that there is this lifelong eternal grudge this Highlander thing going on between Honda and McLaren, all due to what went down in Formula One. A lot of bad things said. Big grudge held by Honda Japan. Not Honda Performance Development in America that supplies IndyCar engines. Nonetheless, Honda Japan, that's a mothership. And if they say no, even though HPD is not their direct unit to control, obviously Honda of America is going to bow to their wishes. So we just know for a fact that anything related to not supplying engines to McLaren, we know that's not an option, but making anything easy for them to get engines. That's also something we could assume would be part of this heck no ain't happening thing. Then there's the practical standpoint. And this is for those of you who have husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever it is, have been in a relationship where it's clear it's not going to the ultimate destination of marriage and long-term bliss. Uh, There's some of us, I've made this mistake, where I have tried to hold on for too long when clearly, (laughs) clearly it's in my best interest to get out and look elsewhere or, or not just be by myself and didn't and tried to fight to keep this dysfunctional thing alive and it only got worse. And then there's the, okay, I can see it's not headed the right direction. Be the smart person and just acknowledge that, deal with it, step away. I have to believe the good folks at HPD, knowing that there's only one year left on this. If it was a three-year, that might be something different. But there's only one year left on this. How hard would you fight based on bad things said by McLaren, their perception of bad things said by McLaren in a different series run and overseen by the mothership, not North America? How hard and how long do you fight just to create a negative situation for McLaren for one year with a team where clearly there's interest between that team Uh, the existing Honda team, and this incoming team to work together. It's going to happen. 
if you really want to fight, okay, then maybe we're going to have to hold off on a year. It's going to happen, though. And here's the other thing, too, just from a basic standpoint. Yes, you could for sure hold on to AeroSPM PM for one more year. But you also have to question what value you're going to get out of that. The value of denying someone something for one year, again, I just don't know how that actually helps Honda in any way, shape, or form. It's not as if AeroSPM PM would try less hard and underperform to some sort of retribution to Honda, not letting them link up with McLaren in a Chevy-powered operation. It's not as if the team would try to tank because they have sponsors, big sponsors, who not only would not allow that, but would leave if that was the case. So Aero SPM would try their hardest no matter what engine they have. But ultimately, Honda knows they only have one year to control the situation to negatively affect McLaren, not Aero SPM, who, to my knowledge, Honda has no beef with. So practically uh, just common sensely i think there has to be a recognition here jim <clears throat> within honda they want to go we don't have to let them go maybe we're going to charge them something there's going to be a buyout and i'm just this just off the top of my head there's going to be x million dollars changing hands maybe those dollars to allow them out of that contract a year early gets put towards more simulator time for the Ray Halls, coins, you name, you know. Maybe that money that comes in gets used to amplify and help the existing Honda teams during the offseason with more off-track performance-based testing and R&D. Something that benefits. Could I foresee that? Absolutely. But I have to believe that while Honda does not have to help and does not need to sever that contract. It's going to happen, whether it happens at the end of 20 or the end of 19. There's a clear desire for McLaren and Aero SPM to combine in some way. Got to believe Honda is going to acknowledge that reality and facilitate something. I that's just, That's the only thing that makes sense to me. I can't say when they would want to do that, Jim, but I have to believe that's where things would head because it's the only thing that makes sense. Last quick item on this, when it comes to the partnering side, everything we've heard for about two months now involves McLaren and sponsorship, not McLaren walking around with a big checkbook trying to buy a team or half of a team, take an ownership stake, but actual just straight-up sponsorship to offer. That's what we've been hearing. Big, solid sponsorship package. Originally was done or attempted to be done at Andretti. That did not work out. Uh, Now we have moving to Aero SPM. But from everything I've heard, it is indeed sponsor dollars, not McLaren buying into taking ownership of. If that were to change in the future, who knows? But definitely it is funding for vehicles that we have heard about, not them actually 
having their name on a business, uh, you know, the ownership of a business that would uh, truly make them an IndyCar team owner at this point. So a couple things we've heard there. Final component here that you've mentioned, which is the Herta thing, have heard the same thing. And again, back to giving Jim full kudos for his piece. Definitely know that there is super strong interest. Uh, You've got to believe this is going to play out in Colton's favor if he allows it to and wants it to. We know that Michael Andretti holds the say, holds Colton's contract in such a way where he can decide where he does or does not race. The biggest thing here, which again, Jim, you've, uh, and I, sh- sorry, I should differentiate between Jim Ayala's article who nailed a lot of things that we've been hearing and Jim Johnstone, your question here, the part about the financially questionable Harding Steinbrenner is that to me is the big driver on drivers. We know they have struggled all year long to put money together to keep Colton on track. There have been questions as to whether they would make it to Mid-Ohio. I've heard the same questions about will they make it to Pocono. And these are questions coming in from very serious people in the paddock, not just, you know, my third cousin's uncle's brother's sister's dog's owner is the nephew's neighbor of a truck driver for one of the teams, but actual like people who run the teams and make the cars go fast. Real people saying, hey, boy. You know, we're hearing from people, people we know saying, oh, boy. So we hope, obviously, all those things are non-issues. But this has just been the big theme all year long. Unfortunately, will Harding Steinbrenner have the money to answer the bell to show up for the first race? Uh, I mean, heck, even the first test, knowing that Pato Ward's car was cut from the team because they didn't have the money. Um, Here we go again with more questions about can they even finish the season and those questions just as as a quick qualifier aren't coming from people that don't like colton and don't like the team like truly the questions that are coming in are the hey man we keep hearing from this source or that you know real real information that there's problems these are from people who i would say without a question huge fans like really truly like the team like the kid want them in the series so it's not folks trying to dig up dirt and cast aspersions it's the opposite. It'd be folks that are rooting for them. So with all that said and that being known and having unfortunately had to write about 17 stories about their ongoing financial struggles despite putting on really good effort, that's the issue if we get past the engine side. That's the big issue here. If money was coming into Harding Steinbrenner Racing, to erase all questions about their current season and next and future seasons. I don't think Colton Herta would be a topic whatsoever. The kid grew up at Andretti Autosport, basically, with his dad back in the day, uh, with this ongoing and long-term relationship between his dad now as a team owner and Andretti through Indy Lights. I mean, the kid is, (laughs) if he doesn't have an employee badge, I'd be surprised. Um, That's home for him. So the thought of, although we're talking Harding Steinbrenner racing, they are an offshoot affiliated, obviously, with Andretti Autosport. The kid is Andretti Autosport. So that, I think, would be the big question for him. Do I leave family to go to McLaren slash 
well, we're just going to call it spam. Thanks to Jim. Does the kid leave because of an offer being made or does the kid leave because man, I hate hearing that I might not have a car to drive race after race and I'm still in my rookie season. Do one of those two items drive interest more than the other or combined? I know that if it was my kid and he had, or she had that much talent, all I would want is stability. And if I'm advising my son or daughter uh, and they were a Colton Hurdle like talent, my whole theme would be, look, love you, kid. I know that you consider whatever team you're with to be family and home, but I'm less concerned about feelings of family and home for your career and more interested in, are you going to have the financial stability beneath you to build from where you're at, go on and become a champion, Indy 500 winner? I don't see that where you are right now unless something drastic changes. The thing they've been failing at all year long, if they somehow manage to win in that department, then awesome. But if it's not going to happen, I don't know how you turn down an offer of stability and potential. Would I say that going into next season, uh, spam would be as strong as Harding Steinbrenner in terms of competitive capabilities? Uh, Doubtful. They'd have a long way to go. Regardless, uh, I wouldn't so much be looking at 2020 for Colton. I'd be thinking 21, 22, time on the F1 simulator, uh, some F1 tests, some other things that for a 18, 19-year-old who's done a lot of racing in Europe, I mean, this is a pretty big window to open up for Colton if things were to go forward there. Hmm. Last angle here, and again, I save this all your the three or four questions up front because it's a big topic and again we're not going to be able to get to all the angles but then there's the mayor yeah and so jim johnstone you've nailed that one as well these are all the things that i'm hoping to get finished in a silly season piece here part of hinch's annual sponsorship is from honda canada it's been well known for quite some time uh Hinch isn't a, quote, pay driver. Hinch just has some really good partners that come with him and want to support him. So that's a great thing. Uh, Petro Canada is another one. They are, you could say, neutral in terms of manufacturer. But uh, Petro Canada has been with him for years now. They invest into his team slash ride. Honda Canada does the same. We know that he has a personal services deal with Honda of America. You've seen all the commercials and, and brand representation he's been doing. If we're talking a driver who is Honda, <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's anyone who's more Honda than Hinch. I mean, we could say Scott Dixon, but you know, Dixie's been with whatever brand Chip Ganassi's gone with. There's some others, Rossi as well, but just saying Hinch plus Honda. It's a, uh, that's a, that's a longstanding marriage. So he's actually, uh, yeah, he just had a second marriage now, added a second one in there with uh, the delightful Miss Dalton. That's the real interesting one here, Jim. Uh, I can tell you that I believe, I, I know that Hinch has one more year left on his contract with SPM. This could be the most interesting angle if we're talking driver market. 
So the going after Colton, not a surprise. Uh, Bobby Rahal, interested in Colton. They're Roger Penske, interested in Colton. Lots of folks interested in Colton. Not a surprise at all. What would be a surprise is if all this were to go down and Chevy were to become the new engine supplier for Aero SPM. I mean, if the guy has a contract with the team and the majority, well, a significant portion of his ride-based funding and personal funding comes from the rival engine manufacturer who's no longer the supplier, what do you do? Do you drop those contracts, look to sever those, get out of them with Honda in order to stay with the team? Or do you recognize that the team is making a change that you would have to assume has none of your longstanding relationships and direct business deals in mind? Let's just be frank. If Aero SPM decides to get together with McLaren and they get the release from Honda that I would have to think Honda would eventually arrive at and, and do and move to Chevy, if you're Hinch, you're ha- I would think having to look at the scenario going, huh, well, looks like you just made a change that doesn't have me in mind. If not... The only other way to look at it is, oh, so in order for me to stay, I need to say goodbye to Honda Canada and my personal services deal just to stay to finish out my last year of my contract here. There's some murkier waters here for sure, Mr. Johnstone. And that's that's where I am hold the highest level of personal intrigue on the silly season angle where would this place hinch where wouldn't this would he indeed say farewell to his honda ties in order to stay and race with chevy uh, obviously he raced with chevy while at andretti auto sport so that's not a new thing not a bad thing by any means just saying in his post andretti auto sport days he has become mr a number one honda um how quickly, how easily would he go back to Chevy just to stay with Aero SPM? Would he receive this news provided it all happens as a clear statement of intent by the team that maybe doesn't include him for the future? Where would that, if he were to leave, where would he go? We know that Ganassi is not interested in adding a third car. I've never heard the team speak of Hinch in a way that would suggest they wanted him. Not, yeah, nothing negative being said here, just honest. You look at the rest of the Honda options. Could there be a Andretti car, a fifth? I don't think so. Uh, if we look elsewhere, you know, it's Dale Coyne. Could there be some movement in the second car uh, alongside Bourdais? Possibly. Uh, spoke with young Santino Ferrucci and know of a team or two that inquired about his availability. He brings some money as well. So there's always that angle of, hey, young talent who also has some sponsors to bring. Hmm, let's talk. Could that open up? Possibly. Hinch to coin a couple of years ago would sound like that was a huge uh, disrespectful thing. I would say not so much today. After that, 
I mean, we're looking at Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan in a third entry, possibly. When I spoke with Bob, he seemed more focused on the team finding their own money so they could pick and choose who would drive that car compared to taking someone with sponsors and a budget to bring. And if you look at someone like Hinch or Marcus Erickson, if they just simply wanted to put a third car on track, period, I think they could have that signed tomorrow with a funded driver solving that puzzle, at least in the conversation with Bob that we had. It was not about that. It was trying to control their destiny to place the driver in the car they felt would give them the best chance of winning, not just paying for a third entry. And then this comes back to what might be the best fit of all, that being essentially a driver swap between Colton Herta and James Hinchcliffe. What does James bring that Colton doesn't? Money through very supportive sponsors. Can't say whether, I don't believe it's a full season worth of funding from, say, a, um, the Petro Canada, Honda Canada, etc. But between those two, Honda being obviously very motivated to help make that happen and a leader circle contract, I'd have to believe you'd be staring at the equivalent of 4 to $5 million. Um, and it's very competitive. And he has really good experience and relationships with Andretti. So if it's not going to be a fifth Andretti car under Andretti's tent, this could by proxy be a fifth by affiliation Andretti car at HSR. So lots of dominoes here. And so this was the big topic to cover in the open. Hopefully we've gotten to a fair portion of it. And there's definitely more silly season things to happen, Lance, that I can tell you. Um, but yeah, Jim, thanks you. Thank you to, to you for spam. I would have never thought of it. So I love it. Uh, spam for sure. <laughs> ah, I can't wait. I can't wait for the t-shirts, uh, provided all this goes down. All right, let's move on to one more kind of sort of silly season question. Then we have a couple of hybrid questions and move into a variety of others and wrap up our Q and a for the week comes in from Corey Matthews, who says MP, when you're looking for info, silly seasons are just things in general. Do you have a quote source that you lean on right away? That's a great question, Corey, because it does fit and definitely related. I, boy, I tell you, I wish I had a source that knew everything. That'd be amazing. Reality is it's multiple sources. I, it's a, it's a strange day when I don't receive at least one text or call it's not often email frankly it's usually something involving my phone uh something from someone about a thing and since i cover both indycar and sports cars it could be across you know both forms of the sport but it is it's an odd one uh i heard one thing yesterday which i can't mention and it was on the sports car front but it was directly from someone who received the inquiry from a driver uh, wanting to drive for their team. And it was just, it made my eyes cross. (laughs) And this is, you know, it's not for print yet. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but if it were to happen, it'd be, it'd be absolutely amazing. And the fact that this was a driver associated with, 
a major automotive brand. Like everyone thinks of this driver associated with just this brand. And the fact that they have reached out and inquired about driving for a rival brand, a direct rival, like, whoa, the news of the driver switching alliances between manufacturers might be as big as the name of the driver itself. It's those kinds of things where you go, oh, that's amazing. (laughs) I wish I could use it. I wish I could go straight to good old Twitter, Instagram or whatever and say, hey, can't though. Um, because that's why you have sources because they trust you and there you go. But no, uh, do not have a single, um, definitely have many, thankfully. And in some cases it's folks reaching out saying, Hey, I heard this thing. Hey, we were just told this thing by our team. Uh, could be a driver saying, Hey, by the way, there's going to be a story coming out tomorrow that I'm doing this thing or switching or, or signing up again, whatever. Lots of sources. And so that's a blessing, really, truly a blessing. And I I do have to believe I'm in a a fortunate position, having worked in both IndyCar and sports car paddocks for a long time as a crew member, as an engineer, as a manager, as a whatever, that I can go and bend a lot of ears or folks feel comfortable coming bending my ear because while I am a reporter, journalist, writer, whatever, In many instances, the folks that I'm speaking with have known me for a long time, long before I was that. So that's really cool. The little bit of a flip side to this, Corey, to close is while there are many sources, uh, there's always a desire and need to not just fact check, but have more than one. So if I have a person telling me a thing, that's great. Uh, but then I need to go and do a little bit of work to check with some other people. And so that's also a very trusted thing where there are folks that I know I can call and every reporter I'm sure has the same dynamic where they'll hear that thing a is happening to team B you go, Oh, cool. That's, that's worth a story. And then you think of who can I call to confirm that? And it isn't always, uh, team B, it isn't, you know, when you hear that team B is doing something, they might not want you to know about it. They might not want to talk about it. So calling them up, although if you can, and you know that in that scenario, it makes sense. You'll do that. Sometimes you're like, nope. if I do that, I tip my hand. They then rush their press release out right now and I've got nothing. So you'll ask some, you'll look for other connections, tentacles, uh, that, that are involved in some way, shape or form that, you know, you can confirm the thing and, uh, at least try and, you know, be the new source that you're trying to be for your clients. So it's a fun thing. Uh, I'll tell you without sources, life would be pretty darn boring. And on almost every major story I have broken, It has been because of a source making me aware of something that I did not discover on my own. Uh, I I wish I could say, boy, I just know everything uh, before anybody, and I'm just clairvoyant. It's, I'd say, nine times out of ten, someone saying, hey, uh, you might want to look into this thing over here. We hear that there's, there's a little bit of smoke, might become fire. On very rare occasion have I 
seen the balls floating in the air, connected the dots on my own and said, oh, goodness, I see this big thing happening on my own. Now I need to go pursue it and see if it's real. So without good old sources, uh, I probably would be pretty bad at what I do, Corey. All right, now let's move into some hybrid related stuff, which is the second major topic of the week to discuss. We'll go back to Jim Johnstone, who says, all right, now for a serious question. I'm excited about the move to hybrids in 22, especially if it brings in another manufacturer too. My question is, if the hybrid portion is contained within the chassis, i.e. batter under the fuel cell, motor generator in the bell housing, which uh, will the engine manufacturers really have anything to do with the actual hybrid development, or are they just dropping in their internal combustion engines? If that's the case, could IndyCar still introduce the new 2.4-liter engines in 21 in the current chassis and bring in the hybrid power in 22 with the new chassis? Could. There's a lot of coulds involved, for sure. Would just say, though, Jim, that if the series is going to go to the expenses of having a somewhat custom KERS system, kinetic energy recovery system, a custom KERS installation for IndyCar use, and then 22 is also the year they've targeted for a new chassis, it would be really odd and, frankly, a bit of a waste of money to try and move things around and maybe bring the motor in in 21 with the new motor in 21, knowing that there's going to be some new development yet again needed for its integration with the hybrid system, the hybrid powertrain overall, it makes a lot more sense to do everything all together in a brand new package that from the outset and day one is all designed to work together with one another. So could I just know that if I was making the decisions, I would do exactly what they've done and said, it's all coming at once and all coming together in a package designed to work together in harmony and unison. Andrew Hoffman says, Marshall, have you heard anything about the possibility of standing starts returning with the new engine and chassis? I know part of the reason it was dropped was issues with stalling on the grid, but presumably the new hybrid system being able to restart the engine would minimize that issue. Are there other issues which might keep standing starts from returning? It's been a really big one, the standing starts thing. Uh, And it's cool for me to see this come back as something that apparently is definitely uh, of interest to a number of IndyCar fans. I think the more surprising thing from this is it's really nothing I've heard from IndyCar uh, that they've viewed this, thought of this. I think hearing from IndyCar fans about, hey, so standing starts coming back. I think that caught the series off guard a little bit because it really was not a factor that I've known of. The The reasons that it went away, was it 20... 13 was the year where they tried it at three or four events. The reason it went away is Mark Miles was never a fan of the concept. Former CEO Randy Bernard was really, really wanted to make that happen. And what I think for the very, for the debut of standing starts in the modern, what, you know, what was it called back then? Verizon IndyCar series. Um, 
For its modern debut, the very first at Toronto resulted in stalls and being waved off and just a normal start. Um, and it just wasn't the thing that they'd hoped it would be. Some of the technology glitches in anti-stall not functioning perfectly, as you, as you alluded to, Andrew, I think that detracted from it a bit. It was something that IndyCar's kind of show and and promotion-minded CEO wanted to do. Didn't really deliver the big, fun impact it was expected to. His boss was definitely, it was a suspect thing from the beginning. And when it really didn't take off, uh, just series-wide, there was, okay, let's put that away. Just go back to what we know and what fans are accustomed to with us. So I think beyond the technical side, guys, will this, would it be more possible knowing that drivers could hit the button and take off if they did stall, if anti-stall did not work as intended, that would certainly be an improved thing. No question. Technically, yes. Uh, Functionally, within the series, I do not know that it is meant to become a thing again because there was no real desire uh, for it to come back. So I think that's a big limiting factor uh, whatsoever. Um, there's, I haven't heard about it. How's that? If I do, I'll let you guys know, but I haven't heard a thing about it uh, at all. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Ryan Terpstra. Who are you, Ryan? Oh, he only sent in a couple questions every week, which I greatly appreciate. Says MP, I love your idea for hybrids on ovals, using it only on pit lane. I'm curious if the new car could lend itself to standing starts, though, at various races. That's the big part, too, which maybe was lost. And I kept Ryan's, and I know it's it's technically a repeat of Andrew's, but I kept Ryan's here because it, it addresses another issue that's come in, and that was uh, maybe a misperception that IndyCar engines or drivetrains currently are not strong enough or capable of doing standing starts and would the hybrid system have to be fortified would the drivetrain have to be fortified to make standing starts possible with uh, this electric boost in place and i kept this because the pit lane angle specifically on standing starts and the fact is every time drivers leave pit lane they're doing standing starts and i realize it's not the classic picture of it but if you watch, you get high revs, driver dumping the clutch, spinning the wheels, often to kick the car sideways so they can get out and around the car in front of them. So while there would probably need to be a stronger gearbox, stronger everything putting the power down with this next generation car, simply because it's going up in horsepower and is meant to crest to reach about a thousand by the end of the formula, we would absolutely need something stronger but just from a capability standpoint, we're doing standing starts all day, every day when these cars leave pit lane and they are launching very hard. No different than if they were sitting out on the front straight uh, doing that with the uh, the lights going on. So definitely everything's in place. If IndyCar wanted to do standing starts today, they could. The cars are capable of doing it. There's strength to do it. Um, it's all there. Just, again, for whatever reason. They've decided to not do that. Let's go to William Matson, who says, what third engine supplier would you like to see joined for the sh- sake of sheer hilarity? He says, hashtag me personally. 
I can't decide between the joy of watching Ferrari getting smoked by Chevy and Honda or maybe Tata, assuming they bring a Nano as a safety car to at least one race. All right. What kind of silly third manufacturer would I want to see? Oh, Lord. I mean, I, uh, I can't think of too many that are just straight up clown car type right now. Um, I mean, I, I would like weird. If we're going to get something, I'd like a, a brand that just says, all right, we are very, very, very different people and we need to do things in a very different manner. So part of me thinks what Subaru, a boxer granted the formula says it has to be a twin turbo V six, but you know, come on uh, hashtag me personally. I get bored with kind of everything samey 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 let's let's see if we can work in something wacky like a flat four turbo uh tri turbo subaru that would be fun and then also maybe they're somewhat sappy commercials about always bringing the children home safe and this you know that's all great stuff don't get me wrong of course we want kids getting home safe yada 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 but yeah maybe it'd bring a little bit of fun because they used to be a fun car company and they've kind of not been as someone who once ran, this is yet again, I've, I've had the most bizarre but awesome life in racing. As someone who once ran the factory Subaru NHRA import drag program, I only did this for about a year, uh, but as someone who ran a 2,000 horsepower funny car front wheel drive turbo flat four subaru <laughs> nhra thing and having worked you know f uh for subaru factory team running its endurance program and put together a highly failing world challenge gt effort all my fault by the way uh, i just remember how much fun subaru was and they are absolutely not fun so i think they'd be hilarious to see them just kind of go about face to where they are right now uh william that would be a blast I know we had a lot of other questions. Uh, I don't know if any of them really came in here in a formal standpoint, but we did have a lot of questions on, so is Honda and Chevy and IndyCar, are they all agreeing to go hybrid in 22 in order to get Porsche back in? Is this some sort of Porsche angle? Because we know that Porsche was interested but walked away because there was nothing electric coming. No, nothing to do with getting Porsche, quote, back. Uh, IndyCar would not make the change just as a Hail Mary to hope to get their interest. Um, I would say that there was a learning moment, though, with Porsche that certainly helped codify the need to go hybrid. And they'd been thinking about going hybrid for a while, but I think the process with our friends at Porsche really helped them to accept the fact that without it they're shooting themselves in the foot over and over and over again uh whether it's manufacturers coming in saying okay we saw the formula but are you got anything else in the back burner maybe that might be more modern yeah you know we're we're here out of interest we didn't see what we needed in your press release on this all combustion engine formula but just we're curious because we like that but is there the thing we really need to say yes coming and then there was 
not what they wanted to hear uh, coming back. I would say that what happened with Porsche was certainly the thing that helped them to grasp, got to do it, got to make this change. Porsche's ship, I believe, has set sail. I have heard nothing about them wanting to come back to the table. But I do believe they understand now, uh, IndyCar that is, that without this option, without this bait to bring in more manufacturers to talk, they were going to land exactly where they were at. That's the other thing that I haven't seen written about much in reaction to hybrids. Folks that don't like hybrids, folks that just want pure internal combustion engine, again, all good, all cool, no issue with whatever your personal leaning or preference is. That, that's not a topic, uh, not an issue for me, nothing to, uh, to see here. The thing, though, that hasn't been written about, and I think is really important to acknowledge, is IndyCar went to the effort of working with Honda, working with Chevy, coming up with a 2.4-liter twin-turbo V6 formula for the 2021 season that was announced on qualifying day, Saturday, at the 2018 Indy 500. It received minimal fanfare in print by the, by the press in general. It received some high fives in terms of, hey, IndyCar wants to go high power again, wants to get up to a 1,000 horsepower. It's going to be awesome. So from a fan standpoint, I, I think everyone was like, cool, big power. We've been wanting that back. That got rave reviews. But in terms of the formula announcement itself, went nowhere. It's a complete dud. There were manufacturers that, as I mentioned, rang came in met kicked the tires had meetings and whatnot not saying those that met and did not go forward all walked away because of the lack of hybrid but i do know that that was a significant component for some that considered and chose not to or met and chose not to so that's again don't underestimate the fact that if a series says hey we're going to do something different and it's coming in a couple of years, and this is the thing that we're doing, hoping that it cracks open the door to more manufacturers wanting to join. And you get phone calls, you take some meetings, there's a couple things feeling promising, then they all collapse. And, you know, by early 2019, eight, ten months after the announcement, you have nothing more than you did when you made the announcement. You still got the two manufacturers and no one else. That's a failure. It's just truly a failure. Call it what it is. And the formula itself wasn't a failure. The failure was the lack of modernity, the lack of offering manufacturers something that would be relevant by the end of 26. That's where the original 2018 2.4 liter formula failed. It was saying, we're going to do something new. It's going to last from 21 through 26. And every manufacturer that read it, I'm sure said, you're coming up with a new formula that bakes in nothing but an internal combustion engine through 2026. Are you mad? Do you know where the, automotive industry is headed 
billions of dollars being invested in all electric trucks right now and etc etc it was just woefully short on acknowledging where the automotive industry is at where just vehicles in general are headed and to say in 2018 we see ourselves through 2026 as being non-hybrid period epic failure of imagination and so not a surprise that having announced it and having had zero manufacturer new manufacturers say yep we're in what else was indycar going to do so that's the other angle i would say that uh, i don't know if it's been fully acknowledged what else were they going to do what they announced was a failure in terms of getting the response and actual signatures on contracts it was meant to generate so going hybrid giving the manufacturers something where they could go back to their boards of directors r&d departments marketing teams and say and see through 2027 we're going to have this hybrid component that's the thing that unlocked we hope will unlock a third and maybe fourth and who knows whatever number manufacturer we can't guarantee it will be the thing william that does bring manufacturers in but it's going to give them the better the best percentage opportunity of that happening because it sure as heck wasn't happening without the hybrid component let's go to mike jablo mike says mp with the new hybrid formula any concerns about the crash worthiness of the cars especially on high-speed ovals with the battery components electric motors etc absolutely uh, mike hull and i touched on that a little bit this is an area that indycar will without a doubt need to make advancements because they will be the first to take hybrids onto high-speed ovals and possibly wreck and have big crashes with these vehicles as we mentioned with mike it's not often where a car is split in half in a crash and exposing things like battery cells etc could happen though could absolutely happen you know if, if they do happen they tend to be at a place like indy or pocono so yeah there's going to have to be a lot of work here to figure out how to house said items and in particular the assuming it's a battery i assume it's a battery still don't know if it's battery i don't know if they're going to do some sort of mechanical thing um there's flybrid's a company that has something that they might go towards a toro track which did the uh the failed super failed nissan front engine lmp1 hybrid uh, they do mechanical stuff i assume it's going to be a battery but don't know for sure but regardless if there is anything battery based like that then yes without a doubt mike uh, there's going to need to be some very serious design not only considerations taken in but some really met you know adventurous crash testing to make sure that fans drivers safety crew are not exposed to problems here in the event of a big exposing type crash Let's see michael goodyear hey michael do you have any updates or insights whether or not we will ever see guys like kyle kaiser or gabby chavez back in the series to me it just seems odd to have recent indy lights champions out of a car especially because they both appear to be extremely talented 
I know that there are always more potential stars coming up the ladder and understand that seats don't uh, just exist to give to everyone. Uh, but I was curious as to what you think might happen with these two. Yeah. So here's, here's a couple things that might be unpopular to say uh, of Kyle Kaiser, Gabby Chavez and Sage Karam. I would say those are the three indie lights champions uh, that come to mind in, I guess I would say this decade who are currently out of full-time rides that also stand out to me as probably the least considered or respected among teams. If I think of a Pato award, uh, I know Colton isn't a champ, but Colton as well is obviously very strong. If I think of a couple of the drivers coming out, there are a few that have just been Holy cow, got to get our hands on them, period. This is a beast. We're going straight to the front. Kyle was never that guy. I really like Kyle. Uh, I think that all that he achieved with Hunkos Racing to win the title was awesome. I think that Kyle on ovals is particularly good. But I would say of all the recent Indy Lights champions, if we had to do a depth chart, who's batting where in the depth chart, uh, Kyle will be towards the bottom. And so that's not trying to be mean to Kyle, just as someone who covers Indy Lights and the road to Indy as well. Uh, Kyle's championship season was one where, how's this? Drop Kyle into the 2018 championship against Pato and Colton. Even if he was in an Andretti Autosport car, equal equipment um, against Pato and Colton, Kyle finishes third. Uh, Gabby, I actually think, is the one with huge among the three. Kyle himself, obviously Gabby, and Sage. I think Gabby is the one with the biggest potential upside. He is a fierce race car driver. Not sure, just reputationally, why he has not been regarded in a higher manner. Uh, but he just hasn't. Um, I'm frustrated for Gabby because I think he's done all the right things. I think he has shown what he can do, and yet it has not been met with the ongoing respect in the paddock that, hey, really need to find a way to get him in a car. Sage, same thing. His lights championship season was not the strongest in overall depth. Obviously, he's shown some flashes. He's worked himself out of some opportunities because of his youth and immaturity, things that I believe are all more than rectified right now. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you, Michael. I wish that there were enough seats that all the lights champs had something to stay in permanently, grow their talent, see how far they could flourish. Gabby's the one that I think, though, that of the three I've mentioned could go the farthest. You know, I feel compelled here as we leave Michael's question and move to the next to uh, to share with you my favorite text of the past week in IndyCar. <laughs> ah, so and this is just because you know, uh, sarcasm is, is absolutely one of my core components as a human being. It always has been. Right after the hybrid announcement, there was a, uh, a very successful person from an IndyCar timing stand who sent something that went more along the lines of, how is it the people who can't make LED lights work on all the cars at every race have decided they're now going to adopt 
the most complex electrical system possible for the cars and make all of them work on all the vehicles in two or three years time. Um, it had me just rolling on the ground crying. Um, yeah. And again, fair play, right? I mean, if you can't get the freaking led panels to just put up a number, uh, or show the length of the pit stop or whatever else, you know, maybe a 50 horsepower electrical bump, maybe that system a little bit more complex, possibly, uh, you're going to go there. Really? Once you get the panels figured out first. So it's the easy comment to make. It's a snarky comment to make. I just love that someone who, again, uh, very well-known person. That was their first reaction that they wanted to share. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Alexander Mack who says, what's better for IndyCar more cars on track every weekend, uh, or for the number of cars to stay the same, and teams like McLaren step in and or Carlin and Foyt team up with another team or smaller teams. And then he asks, who, if any, is being heard is seriously looking into IndyCar as a brand new team? Yeah, I I would love to just see more cars, Alexander, I have to admit right now. Uh, but in terms of need, actual need, what do I think would be best? I would love to see more partnerships for sure before teams those smaller teams maybe step up to their own if i look at a carlin i would although they've obviously worked with mclaren a little bit i'd love to see carlin you know work with maybe another team to make themselves stronger faster foyt they certainly need some help uh, whether it's a smaller team stepping up bringing in some resources maybe they lack or i'm not exactly sure what but the hey, we're doing it on our own, and we've been doing it on our own for many, many years and doing it at the back of the field. Yeah, that doesn't work. As for new teams coming in, I have to admit, Alexander, I have not heard much. I've heard we have a desire to do so. Actual, real, and they've got the money, and they've got the everything to make it happen. That I haven't heard. Uh the one, though, that stands out that if they <clears throat> ever decided to, they could instantly is Wayne Taylor Racing in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Um, man, I really hope that happens because I think that there could be some really good stuff, knowing that they also have Chevy ties going back 20, 30 years. There could be something pretty darn cool for sure. Uh, let's get down to your last couple of questions. We have just kind of sort of passed the one-hour mark, but we're going to pretend that we haven't. Peter Nutt from Holland says, hey, I hope you'll do the French fry and bacon and hamburger show again soon. But could you please get Miller and Bourdais an empty beer crate to stand on? They look like midgets in a world made up by giants. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'll do my best. I mean, I'm like six foot one ish, six and a half one. I mean, I'm almost six one, I think, which is not like tall there are a lot taller people for sure um miller i don't know he must be 510 511 i don't know uh bourdais some i don't know um i guess i can try and like squat down a little bit i can't get any narrower quickly at least i'm trying to get narrower for sure uh yeah we, we got to do more of a widescreen shoot than anything that's because of my fat butt but yeah i guess i'll uh we'll try and get them to step on some step up on something uh, no guarantees yet but it sounds like i might be able to attend and cover 
the Portland IndyCar race, which would be my first race back. So I'm really hoping. And before then, sounds like I might be able to go to next week's uh, weather, weather tech, good Lord. It is a weather tech raceway, Laguna Seca, the Rolex Monterey Motorsports reunion, which I cover, I've covered every year for about a decade. So it sounds like I might be able to do that next week. And if that is the case, it would indeed be my first time back at a racetrack since May 21. So good Lord. Uh, all right, let's go to, uh, Zolan. As we wind down here, what do you think about Marcus Erickson in general? Will he get a seat in 2020? IndyCar is on the rise in Sweden. Yes, it is, thankfully. I really like Marcus. I've been surprised this year, despite knowing each track is new for him, uh, barring Coda. But it's all new experiences. Understand all that. The one thing I've been surprised about, and I had this discussion with a team owner yesterday who was in agreement I haven't seen attack mode, Marcus. I haven't seen the, and I will go forward no matter what, Marcus. Seen that in his countryman, Felix Rosenquist. I mean, mid-Ohio was the Felix passes everybody show. That was amazing. And that kid's done that a couple times this year. Uh, We see that with Colton Herta. We see that with Pato when he was in the series uh, quite often. Um, we see that in (laughs) Santino Ferrucci, who is just as much of an oval rookie as Marcus. Um, I haven't seen that. And I will go forward type hard edged thing from Marcus that I was hoping to see seen him have, you know, Detroit was obviously a good weekend for him. We've seen some flashes. What has surprised me though, is how few flashes have really stood out i know that the aero spm team not particularly strong this year despite their best efforts they've just not been highly competitive uh at most rounds so can't put all this on marcus but i mean look if santino ferrucci in a dale coin racing car with far fewer dollars and fewer of everything and with the same lack of IndyCar experience, by and large, as Marcus. If Santino in a smaller team with fewer resources is constantly going forward, I, I'm running out of ways to explain away the reason that Marcus hasn't, knowing that, in theory, an Aero SPM car and a, the second Dale coin entry should be pretty similar in terms of capability. So... I think if Marcus can unlock, show a little bit more heat in the vehicle, I think that's going to help him a lot over the final couple of races. I do not think he's going to be back at Aero SPM or Spam or whatever it might be called if all that happens. And that's not because he's a bad guy, because they dislike him, uh, because his budget is small, which it isn't. I think, as I did the story with him, Uh, I think it was the first time he said it publicly, at least, that he wants to stay in IndyCar and with SPM. Posted that story. The team received it well. Didn't necessarily do anything to take him up on the offer. And so that's the reason why I'm not totally confident that he's going to be back there. If there was a feeling of, yeah, we like this, this is something, put your name on a new contract, I think that would have happened. So unless something's changed that I don't know about, 
I think if Marcus wants to stay in IndyCar, we are talking about Harding Steinbrenner Racing, provided Colton's no longer in that seat. It's Dale Coin Racing. It is possibly Ray Hall in a third vehicle there. Uh, could it be a Ed Carpenter Racing? You know, Marcus is going to have to find himself a new home, I believe, and I don't think that would be a bad thing. Uh, I think even though he's not even at the end of his first season, actually think a bit of a reboot. Let, let's do this over again and maybe come at it from a different angle and realize that what makes Alexander Rossi such an absolute monster in the car beyond all of his, uh, beyond all of his talent, it's crazy aggression. Uh, it, it's <laughs> the guy by the way is not just quick in a racing vehicle, the guy is just incandescent with I'm going to go forward and you better watch the F out. Scott Dixon, even though his stupid nickname is the Iceman, whoever gave that to him, I have no idea why. I mean, that guy, he is not just like doo-doo-doo behind the wheel. That guy is a monster. The common theme of what makes a great IndyCar driver today in the, the modern era is green flag to checkered flag aggression. Obviously there are times where you have to cool your jets a little bit, understand that, but by and large it's the ability to be in that headspace of attack, attack, kill, kill, kill. If you're not getting there and you're not staying there and you're not tapping into that on a regular basis, you're probably not going to get to the front on a regular basis. For Marcus, knowing that he does appear to be a really sweet guy, and I really like him, like really like the guy. If he wants to play with the Sharks, he's got to start thinking like a shark, man. Um, got to do it. So I hope he can tap into that. I hope he can return. hope he can find a team uh, where they will encourage his inner animal to come out. So that's my little thought there as I on. Let's go to Tim Falkowitz. From a team perspective, is the jump from Indy Lights to IndyCar too big? With IndyCar being much more expensive, uh, involved with pit crews, longer races, more races, different tires, engines, etc. Is it any wonder we don't get more teams jumping in uh, and the ones that do happen to struggle? Well, from that team perspective, no, it's not too big, Tim. Uh, what it is, is like a player coming out of college basketball football or otherwise it's very rare when they step up to the pros and are in their rookie season even their second season sometimes really truly effective wow look at that it happens don't get me wrong but by and large it's the gonna ride the bench for a little while you're gonna play behind the lead whatever it is uh, whether it's you're the number two quarterback or you're the backup point guard whatever it's they're not all lebrons the lebrons are very very rare so it's not a case of too big it's a having to learn the differences b adapt to them and then c take the necessary amount of time to master what's in front of you that is different so that is honestly the biggest answer here you look at a meyer shank racing brand new to indycar racing 
they're hoping in year, it'll technically be year four, I guess, because they did one race, the Indy 500 in 2017. Uh, but 2018, they came in with, what, six races. This year, it's been 10 or so. Next year, they're hoping to go full-time. They realize that, you know, it's going to take third concerted effort season to really get to a place where we think we can be seriously competitive. I don't know if top 10s everywhere is still reasonable, it's just going to take time. And so that's the thing, Tim. It's not uh, the the length of the leap. It's the length of time for any team to come in and truly master the differences. I would say if we're talking a Formula One team coming in would be much shorter because they have operated at a very high level in open wheel, understand a lot of the unique things about it. But even then, I would not expect Mercedes ferrari red bull to come into indycar and in year one be vying for a championship year two absolutely but having to get through hey what is a gate what is a gateway <laughs> what is that it's a track okay road court oh, oval okay but kind of right, that no all right that is a weird oval huh okay banking here but not the oh, okay just all these little things where you go, cool, I know you're a championship caliber team. We expect you to win a championship. We do not expect that to happen in year one. So if you take a team like Shanks coming out of sports car racing, I mean, I realize they did Horm Atlantic uh, decades ago. There's still a huge learning curve for them to overcome, Tim. So it's just that. It's just time. Just time figuring out. All right, last couple of questions for you here. I think we've got about three to go. A little bit of our overtime here. Still feeling good about the duration. It's still only 60 minutes. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Go to John Richter who says, Am I making my last trip to Pocono as an IndyCar fan? I hope not. Will I be road tripping to Richmond? Much further from me from New York City next year. Question mark. Last thing that I've heard, John, is that there is a stated, publicly stated interest by Pocono to keep IndyCar, to talk with IndyCar. Last thing that I heard as well is those talks have not happened in terms of IndyCar reaching out to communicate to then explore those possibilities. So this is yet another thing I need to try and figure out here. I know that there's a there's a hope that this can continue. I And I say that hope is a general one between both sides. I don't know if the incremental year-by-year growth in terms of crowd size is one that would pique IndyCar's interest. You could kind of chart things out and say maybe 10 years from now, the grandstands would be in a place where you'd feel good just looking, just optics alone. I'd say the crashes losing my dear friend many folks dear friend justin wilson in 2015 robbie wickens big crash last year just optics again if we're talking trauma in indycar unfortunately poco has been poco good lord that's a really bad band from the 70s pocono has been the place where, unfortunately, our attention has turned more than once in the last couple of years. 
I realize those things have nothing to do with who bought tickets and TV ratings and all those kinds of things. Geographic necessity. Just saying that if I'm IndyCar and I'm looking at do we stay or do we go, uh, bigger crowds leading into this year's race, I think would sway things in a much easier let's do another deal type direction. Don't underestimate the trauma of Justin's loss lingering and it being compounded by Robert Wickens crash within the paddock. Maybe the biggest angle to consider here, which I don't know if it's been explored much, but I know it to be a real thing because I hear it from a surprising volume of people. Even today, the folks in the paddock doing the racing for you, for us to put on the entertainment. These things aren't forgotten. The, when I think of going to Pocono, I think of friends dying or being massively injured and their lives being changed. That thing sticks with a lot of people turning up who are bolting wheels onto cars, turning the steering wheels within the car, standing on pit lane, making decisions on when to pit the person whose name is on the side of the transporter owning the outfit. Not saying it's a, it's a paddock wide thing by, I mean, of course there's never a hundred percent on anything in IndyCar, but just the amount of people who, when they think of Pocono, they think of bad things within the paddock and then have the follow-up. I don't know, man, if we still need to keep going here, that this sure feels like we are playing with explosives and the, the risk of another, Justin, another wiki, another something type crash feels like it is ever present here in ways that aren't elsewhere. Don't underestimate that vibe still being a strong factor for a number of folks in the paddock and that feeling being conveyed back to IndyCar. Don't know if we still need to come here, boy, I don't know. So I'll, I'll take a knee on filling in any more than that. From my perspective, you probably have a good idea though. Uh, I like Pocono. I really do love Pocono. Uh, would love going there every year for the rest of my life with IndyCar provided there were enough fans in the stand to look like there was a decent crowd to warrant it and provided some pretty big rethinks and implementations of safety improvements were done. Let's go to our man, Jane Bethay. Just comment here, people, if you want to make it hard for folks at IndyCar to not re up with Pocono, get your asses to the event. So, so far I've convinced four new folks to come to the IndyCar race at Pocono and get into racing. He says, I want this race to continue for years to come. And James's note, which I tried to throw in here right after that's the thing. It's always the thing. Hey, so IndyCar is going back to one of my home tracks, Laguna Seca. Awesome. Is it going to succeed? Is it going to thrive? It's 100% based on how many people turn up. There's a secondary factor, which I hear is going well, which is corporate sales. 
hospitality units and all kinds of that stuff. But honestly, the thing that is going to make Monterey stay or go is how many tickets are sold. In this very specific case, it's due to how much money is generated to cover the sanction fee. Um, IndyCar is being well paid to be in Monterey. We know that because it's a, a county-owned thing. Records are public. The amount of the sanction fee, I believe it's a million and a half dollars or so. It's public knowledge. How is that going to get recouped? Charging for hospitality suites and all kinds of other things. Got that. But people coming in through the gate buying tickets, that is going to be, I would believe, the greatest method to recoup the money being spent, uh, the sanction fee being put out to get IndyCar to be there. Uh, it's no different than a band's retainer. A fairly big retainer is being spent to get a big band to come and play Laguna Seca. Well, if you look out, if the lights go up and the band walks out onto the stage and they see the first three rows are filled, but the rest of the arena is by and large empty or just scattered with small pockets of people, I don't know if they're going to be coming back to play that venue again. That town might not be seeing that band again. Same thing at Pocono, more people needed in the grandstands, et cetera, et cetera, uh, would definitely say that. Portland, same thing. Good, very good crowd on IndyCar's return next uh, last year. Need more this year. Monterey, same thing. Uh, has not had big crowds for a lot of its races every year. So that's not specific to IndyCar necessarily, but I'm hoping that IndyCar can break the trend and put a lot of people on the ground, in grandstands, on the hillside, surrounding the corners to show not only that there's visible public support by turning out for IndyCar, but all importantly, money is being generated at the box office to help cover the, uh, the retainer to make sure that it makes business sense for it to continue for many years. So good on you, James. And that's honestly, that's the thing. If you love IndyCar and you go to races, even if it's the Indy 500 and we know there's a huge crowd, if you love the sport, you want it to succeed being an evangelist, it's kind of a thing. See if you can bring a couple friends who don't know about it, never considered it, whatever. Uh, if you need tickets, let me know. I know people. Uh, I can probably help if you truly need the financial help to get a couple extra people on the ground. Um, let me know. But that's a thing. If you want it to succeed, which I believe I do, you do, we all do, grab your neighbor. Grab your the person you share the cubicle with the whatever say hey let's go let's go do something fun on saturday if you really like it we'll come back sunday and try and make new indycar fans try and give the folks that put on the races try and give the series itself no reason to walk away absolutely so good on you james and definitely uh keep preaching that my friend close here with erica rosa thank you for sending this in erica says, so want to get your thoughts on making the push to pass each time for each driver private and not available to other teams. It says it was a random discussion I was having with another fan. And Erica closes this week's episode by saying best to you and your wife and a pat on the head for your cat, Rocky. Thanks. You know, I talk about Rocky enough because he's always jumping up on the table here while I'm recording, but it maybe makes Rosie fall into the background a little bit. So I got to do more to mention my girl, Rosie, who 
<clears throat> bites a living heck out of me and she's just <clears throat> she's just a blast like her brother um i like this idea erica so much of what we do in indycar just racing in general i would say these days is about information everything's available overload everybody knows everything i love the idea of taking something like this and making it completely private i love the idea of maybe only the team itself having push to pass time remaining information available part of me wonders though if we should make that just truly strip all knowledge away hey guess what driver <laughs> you get everything spoon fed you right in front of you that you got pages of information how much of this you have left how much of that just guess what you got to got to do a little bit of math and counting in your head press the button one two three four click deact all right i got four uh, i got 200 seconds so try 196 left I, I like maybe going extreme on this erica so i love the idea i think indycar should consider this i really do you know it's one thing to know oh they're on the button you need to hit the button and the thing's it's flashing pp push to pass on the side of the led panel if it's working um i i really like this i'd never fully thought of this as a possibility erica but i'm 100 percent behind it and even down to the point of the team not knowing although i guess you could tell because you're going to see a spike and boost until we get the curve systems in place there are other forms of information that could be seen obviously if a driver now has a, a peak in mile per hour at the end of the straight that they did not the lap before etc you can kind of okay they got he was on he or she was on the button obviously the driver can say i'm on the button by communicating that over the radio telling the team to count that might get to be a little bit aggro as well so it's not like you could really hide the fact of when the driver is on the button from the team but again i think maybe just not making the amount of time left available to the team so even that could be randomized a bit hey we're getting down to the end of the race there's a big duel between two drivers and yeah they're going to try and you oh well actually they can't you know or maybe one of them ran out and, and wasn't aware thought you know press the button thinking they were going to get the boost all the way down the straight and they get one second of it and it cuts off because they ran out um i like this yeah the random stuff don't underestimate lack of information and random being huge factors in making for fun races rain that's why when when folks say rain is the great equalizer it's the exact opposite it equalizes nothing it takes things the exact polar opposite direction it makes things wild and crazy it's huge swings in performance from team to team so although we can't have rain at every race to mix things up i do like this idea erica i really do so among the many things i need to share with indycar next time i speak with folks there this is one of them all right well this was the only 60 minute please don't look down and count and see how long it really was 60 minute q a session to close our weekly fan driven indycar listener driven q a session here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Thanks again to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com. Do not forget, please, to go back. 
and like the question that you enjoyed the most from whomever. I'm just going to give my personal shout-out. My vote doesn't count, but huge shout-out here to Jim Johnstone for coming up with SPAM as the acronym for the potential McLaren Aero SPM team. Definitely vote through upvoting on which question you like the most. I will seek out whomever that was and announce it next week on the show of who's going to get one of those three giveaway packs from torontomotorsports.com. And thank you again to Bell Racing Helmets USA for being truly awesome partners and even better friends. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. This is our week in IndyCar show. And if you'd like to listen to any of the previous couple years worth, be sure to visit our new-ish marshallpruittpodcast.com site. We have a special week in IndyCar section where you can go back and listen to every single one we have recorded along with the other 600-plus podcasts waiting for your enjoyment. With all that said, I will speak to you next week.